This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here. Your coach, your guide on the side. Top of the morning to you. Happy Wednesday it is. It's also a National Hole in My Bucket Day. This is the day, you, I guess, you need to be checking your buckets. You never know when you're going to have a hole in your bucket. There's a hole in the bucket. Dear, dear Liza, dear Liza, there's this hole in the bucket. Dear Liza, a hole. Man, Jeff sounds a lot different when he sings. Is that not one of the greatest songs ever? Because it can go on forever. That That's your mark of greatness? It that never can, ends? That can be arranged, by the way. For it to go on forever. Well, it already feels like it has. Absolutely. Hey, um, great show today. Have you guys heard of Donald Trump? Occasionally, yes. He's, Recently? He's in the news lately. Um, but today we're going to be talking about irrational politics because there's some interesting psychology that led to President Trump's uh, election. And everyone, well, yeah, them people are crazy. They're just racist. But there might be some truth. A couple might be crazy and a couple might be racist. But there's other psychology going on. And interestingly, what uh, President Trump was able to pull off was kind of a masterful uh, political approach to this psychology. He just he flew he flew the perfect course that got people to believe that he gets them. And uh, it also tells you how bad people are hurting, right? Because they'll they need they need help. They need something to go, something to change. So today we're going to be talking about the appeal, the appeal of irrational politics. Why irrational politics appeals? Understanding the allure of Trump, with um, with a researcher that's been studying uh, Trump for a while. Also um, today we we're, we got to get to the bottom of the hole in the bucket, and uh, lots of headlines with Donald Trump. As he's back, uh, some people are quitting in his communications uh, team. Personal reasons. Personal reasons. They personally don't like him. They personally have got to get out. He's driving them crazy. And, uh, you know, the dance goes on. I watched Sean Spicer's um, press hearing. Interesting. It was it, Hearing? Well, what do we call it? Press. Cause, Conference. But it wasn't really. may end up in a hearing, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was the beginning of. <laughs> A lot of review of possible hearings. Um, he's it's an interesting. He's got an interesting job. I mean, I think it's got to be one of the hardest jobs around. Because, but he made a really great point. Donald Trump is his best advocate. He's his best voice. Because basically, he was saying because none of us can do it right. Mm. I mean, like Donald can do it. So. That's that's kind of what they're leaning towards is maybe getting rid of the pre- daily press conference and President Trump just speaks for himself. Yeah. Oh, that'd be great. Because then he can't get mad because he said it. Yeah. Well, or bring in Corey Lewandowski nah. that he already had on board and fired once. Uh, anyway, interesting stuff ahead there. We'll get to all that fun. Plus, of course, headlines and uh, more of from the National Hole in the Bucket song. 
Sometime. There's a oh, hole in no, the bucket. I didn't. No, I didn't dear want Liza, it now. Dear Liza, there's this hole well, in you were giving up we'll vibes. Let's just we'll just keep going back to it and see if he's so still singing. Okay. Because yeah. Yeah, Liza sounds familiar too. Hmm. Anyway, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on, my friend? Man with a gun at the Orlando International Airport Tuesday night had been taken into custody after a lengthy standoff in a rental car area. Police said everyone is safe. Orlando police tweeted. Uh, earlier, a police spokesperson said officers responded to reports of a man with a gun in the terminal. No shots fired. She said the incident took place in the rental car area of the airport. David Hess had traveled to Orlando on business and was standing at the Dollar Thrifty rental car counter. A thrifty employee ran in from the garage area and said, There's a guy out there with a gun. Take cover. He has a huge gun. Oh, wow. Hess called 911, was told by an operator there were reports of a man with a gun in one of the rental parking lots. Hess and the other customers went into another garage and hid behind concrete beams. They remained there for several minutes before employees said the suspect was surrounded inside and arrested. Hmm. Wow. You don't want to be in the airport and get you know employees run by saying, he's got a big he's gun. He's got a big gun. I've been there. I've been right where that took place. That's scary. Yeah. I mean, you, somebody could be there with their family. So no, no one hurt. No shots fired. The, wow. The gentleman was... Uh, Having a tough day, it sounds like. Yeah, so I mean, it happens. They're helping him now. Um, unease about white supremacist activities in Portland deepened after the fatal stabbings of two men who tried to shield a young woman from anti-Muslim, uh, an anti-Muslim tirade. And some people worry that the famously tolerant community could see a resurgence of the hostilities that once earned it the nickname of Skinhead City. Wow. The attack aboard a light rail tra- train happened Friday. The first day of Ramadan, the holiest time of year for Muslims. Authorities say Jeremy Joseph Christian started verbally abusing two young women, including one wearing a hijab. Uh, when three men on the train intervened, police say he, the Christian attacked them, killing two, wounding one. He's, Christian, 35, was defiant during his brief initial court appearance on Tuesday, shouting, you can call it terrorism, I call it patriotism. He made repeated outbursts saying, you've got no safe places, the death to the enemies of America, and on and on and on. He'll be in court again June 7th. Wow. So they're hoping that doesn't go on. The mayor there is trying to stop two alt-right protests, I guess, that are planned for the next month or so. He's trying to find a way to block those so that the unrest doesn't continue in the community. Holy cow. Yeah, they're kind of having some uh, civil unrest, I guess you could yeah. say, and they're trying to stop that. So, In lighter news, the world of competitive spellers, hmm. Sylvie Allogman, Lamontage? Spell, spell that, please. L A M O N T A G N E. Lamontage. Except I don't think she's French. She is now. She's now French. So, Sylvie, known as a juggernaut, she placed fourth cool. in last year's Scripps National Spelling Bee, ninth in 2015. Last summer, she traveled to California and won the Spelling Bee of China's North America Spelling Champion Challenge, a contest for kids in the U.S. and China. So, apparently, they have a contest and kids from China and the United States wow. go head to head on spelling. Yeah. Just kind of a an alternative contest to the National Spelling Bee. Now that 14-year-old from Denver is no longer eligible to compete in this week's National Spelling Bee uh, that'll be in uh, Maryland, which will be televised on ESPN if you've watched that. Yeah, it yeah. says he turns these young kids into momentary celebrities, mainly because of the sometimes awkward noises they make when they <laughs> lose. But right. Oh. But it's interesting. Sylvie now has gone into consulting. She's known as a spelling bee coach. Oh, really? So she's 14. She's aged out of the spelling bee. So she, because she's performed well, she's consulting 
other contestants who were trying to figure out Holy how to win cow, it. Holy cow, that's enterprising. So, I, hear that, I hear that those spellers age horribly, too. Oh. She's 14, but she looks, she looks like, like she's 42. Yeah. Yeah. What, what do you think the rate for spelling, hourly rate for spelling bee coach is? What, was it worth, or what's, what is she charging? What, what's she charging? $100 an hour. 200 an hour is what she's making. Did she win? No. She, I, she, oh. So she finished fourth. She finished ninth in 2015. Now she's retired, but she's coaching and making wow. 200 an hour as she's but coaching. But I mean, I guess that there's only a few families that are in the running, right? What they do you mean? How many families would pay $200 an hour to have a spelling bee coach? Not sure. But apparently it's a growing business. Wow. See, if I were a parent, I would want to haggle like, uh, you were fourth. So that bumps it down to 125. What do you think you were first? So yeah. says so spelling bee aficionados say a recent surge in competition and a tightening of rules meant to limit co-champions has spawned a demand for younger coaches such as Sylvie, high schoolers or college kids, months or just a few years into their bee retirement, who can pass along fresh intelligence on words to memorize and how to decode bizarre words based on their language of origin. Weird. Did you, speaking of bad words or weird words, did you hear um, about Donald Trump's new word? I saw that this morning. Apparently, so he trumped, he trumped out, he uh, tweeted out, despite negative press, Kofi-fi. Yeah. I guess. And so nobody knew what Kofi-fi was, but it was a mis, it was a misprinted. I mean, he mistyped. Yeah. It was supposed to be conference. Is that what it is? Yeah. Okay. Because when I was looking, no one had actually confirmed what it was. It's a typo, he said. It's just a typo. And so, it's spell check. It does it to you. But sometimes. now everything, everyone's going off with pictures of what Kofi Fee means. Like, right. you know the movie, um, what's the name of that movie where they go? Is there like Reefy or isn't that? No, Reefy uh Oh, that's uh, Arrival. So that movie Arrival where they're trying to speak with the aliens from another planet, Kofi Fee apparently was, one of, the was words. one of their words. That one is brought up a lot. They use that same one when there was the whole Oscar snafu where the wrong name was read off of the ballot. Yeah. That's <laughs> kind of creepy. <laughs> There's, so they're actually – everyone's out trolling Trump now. Joking about how he's got. I, the best I'd like words. you to stop showing that to me, please. <laughs> you got to be careful when you tweet. You got you got to be careful, especially when you have that many people watching. And somebody made a really interesting point that he's Donald Trump doesn't drink alcohol. No, he does all everything you're seeing him do. It's completely sober. It's just sober at three in the morning. It's amazing. <laughs> um, anyway, so if you if you're wondering why everyone keeps bringing up Kofi Fi or whatever Fi, I don't know how people are pronouncing. Yeah, it. I don't know if it can be pronounced. So it's yeah, got to be an acronym for something. That's what people were you thinking. Think so they're so. trying to figure no. that out too. So it's just it's just a mistyping of conference. More coffee. I mean, I'm, I'm solving it for everybody. I saw some short videos of people like typing it in to see what uh, into their phone to see what it would spell check to. Oh yeah. If that's what he did, or you're trying oh, to, you know, wow. Yeah, backwards. People care that much? Well, you know, it's an early on a, on a Wednesday. So I have this beautiful granddaughter that all she wants to watch is Moana. Mm. I am Moana. Thanks. Um, You're welcome. And all I do is, <laughs> is just, I, I'm tired of Moana. Yeah, I watched it once. I was good. I've seen, I bet you it, it's got like 150 million views. Mm. On Vivo, on um, what's it called? On YouTube, mm-hmm. and um, 
if I watch it one more time. Like, but it's beautiful because she then breaks into song. My grandbaby right. sings. So it's wonderful to hear her cute little voice. Uh, apparently, Kathy Griffin got in trouble. Uh-oh. You, apparently, you're not allowed to take a decapitated image of the president right. covered in blood and hold it up. Yeah. That's without getting some pushback. Push yeah. Or a visit from the Secret Service. Like, which but who getting. on earth would think that that would work? Man, you can't do anything these days. She yeah. did a photo shoot holding a bloody head resembling Donald Trump. You just can't no. do that. that She's that a would professional. Be, that would be too far. Yeah. The definition right there. If you get to that point, just know you've gone too far. I mean, like, that, that's the point. Well, at what obvious, point but... is it too far? Is it the minute, the minute you're holding the head of a president? Yeah. Was it a picture or oh, was it like oh, a dummy head? It was a dummy head. Oh, but it, brother. But it looked like him and she like covered it in it's pretty, a red substance. It was pretty bad. It's so pretty bad. How is she in trouble then? Well, apparently, um, you know, a lot of the Trump followers are can't believe it. People yeah. want to boycott everything she does now and it's kind of game on now. It's just interesting. At no point in that process did she think... Maybe this is not a good idea. This is why you need your mother around, because your mother would say, Kathy, put the head down. Put put down the corn syrup As the, and red food dye. I read this this morning. The uh, deputy news director uh, at BuzzFeed kicked out a, a tweet, and he goes, guys, Kathy totally didn't know a picture of a decapitated U.S. president would make people upset. Easy mistake. I mean, that happens. <laughs> I mean, that happens. So her point was, I'm a comic I have to push the edges, the boundaries of life, and, you know, I cross the line. Sometimes I move it, then I cross it. Sometimes I cross it, then I move it. But how is that funny to people that don't support Trump? These are her exact words. I'm a comic. She said, I crossed the line, I moved the line, then I crossed it. I went way too far. The image is too disturbing. I understand how it offends people. It wasn't funny. I get it. That might be why she's apologizing is because it wasn't. There was a lot of pushback from everyone. This yeah. guy here from the LA Times, he goes, my feed today has mostly been liberals discuss- disgusted by Kathy Griffin and conservatives asking why liberals aren't disgusted by Kathy yeah. Griffin. I mean, I think pretty much universally everybody's <laughs> – and when you see the image, it's just disgusting. It's just bad. There, and there was no real point for it. It doesn't really do anything. But then it someone's just... going to say, nobody ever did that to Barack Obama, but mm. they probably did worse and they other versions of it. They put a Hitler on Obama. Yeah. Well, I'm sure that I – mean, that was old with – Trump, too. I mean, this is how it goes, but I think pretty universal. Everybody's, we, let's just all say now, we can't. So is, can't is, is this just have a head finding boundaries? Have we now found, okay, you don't go that far? Well, <laughs> but it, it's, I think it all depends because people were going far. I mean, there was a sculptor that put naked statues of Donald Trump all over Europe like well, in six different like places Seattle and San yeah. Francisco and, yeah. Also in bad taste. Again, yeah, that's in bad taste. Too, too. far. Yeah. yeah. So that was probably, I mean, this is just an ever changing line, I bet. Mm. But it's good we're having a conversation because, you know, Kathy went too far. And now we know. And now we know don't do that. <laughs> Anytime you're talking about the death of somebody, I mean, that's a. Yes. You've gone too far. It's a big lesson. It's a lesson for everybody, really. Kids, gather around. Grab your pencil. Take a few notes here. We don't need to pretend to kill somebody in order to get attention. No, no, no. You can get attention other ways. 
Be the be the jokester in the classroom. Dye your hair. Dye your hair. A funny color. Be the class clown. But don't. Don't. Hold up a decapitated head of the sitting president of the United States. Not a good idea. If you're a if you want a career. Okay, little uh, little heads up for you. We'll take a break when we come back. We're talking about why irrational politics appeals. Actually, perfect segue from the Kathy Griffin story. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Many people are questioning the rationality of President Trump's comments, his decisions and promises. Some have even questioned if he's got mental health issues. But is there something about his irrationality that is actually so appealing? And what about his followers? When uh, when President Trump was elected, many people have been questioning not only the president, but who would vote for such a person? And then they take extreme positions like only uh, the biggest racists in the world, the the misogynists, the the bigots would follow such a person. This uh, this irrationality in in politics is it's an interesting world we're living in. Here to speak with us today is the author of the book "Why Irrational Politics Appeals: Understanding the Allure of Trump." is uh, is Mari Fitzduff, and Mari is the author of Why Irrational Politics Appeals. She's also the founding director of the International Master's Program in Conflict Resolution and Coexistence at the Heller School at Brandeis University. Uh, Mari, thank you so much for your time today. Great to be with you, Matt. What an interesting um, read. As, I, as I've been kind of getting ready for this interview, it really does seem like uh, politics has taken a very interesting, almost, I guess the best word is irrational turn, um, and how extreme everything is getting. Talk to us about why, why has it gone so crazy? I think one of the things we're, we're learning about, not just in the United States, but also in Europe, I, I come from Northern Ireland, so I've been keeping a good eye on Brexit, as it were, is that we seem as people to be dividing into two kinds of worlds. The first world is probably the world that you, Matt, and many of your listeners belong to, which is a world that extends beyond our own nation, that's very much globalized into the communication technology can bring us, delighted to meet, as it were, other worlds through it, delighted to meet different people from different countries. And others who instinctually don't find that comfortable, they just feel that they don't fare well when they're in company that's very mixed. They feel they don't articulate, as it were, their fears. They feel they're being left out. And I think the, uh, they actually are being left out in many ways because the new jobs that are going are going to the globalized world in terms of the alternative energies, etc., and not to where the big jobs used to be in the Rust Belt of the United States. So it's almost as if there's two things happening in the world at the same time. And this is not unusual because you often find within societies or societies that are actually more worried about moving on and the new and others within it who are more adventurous. It's not that one is good and the other is bad. We actually need both. But I think we have quite a jolt, as it were, in terms of how they're meeting at this stage. And it seems like they've never um, it, it, they've never been at such odds with each other. It, it's almost like – because we, we understand that there's people that believe in globalization and those that kind of seem to, to not want it as much. But it seems like we don't even understand – each other. It's almost like people are shocked by the views of their neighbor. 
Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I think the interesting thing is what I found out, and I was studying this with a lot of other co-authors in terms of Trump, is that Trump has actually let people bring their fears to the surface. And fears that they would only say maybe in their own homes, fears that they have about people who they see as strangers. He's actually permitted them to come to the surface with their ideas and their feelings, above all their feelings. Now, I don't think Trump created this. I think what he, what he did by the way he publicly addressed people in many ways, it permitted them to speak of what they actually felt as opposed to what they thought they weren't supposed to feel. Um, political correctness I think, men, means that many of us are actually fighting, hiding what we actually feel uh, because we're afraid of going wrong, as it were, in terms of the public norms. So I think it, this has been happening quite some t- for quite some time. It's been happening in Europe as well. And Trump provided the, the, the loudspeaker, as it were, around which people could accumulate. And, you know, it's interesting, they actually, they actually began to form a tribe as they did this. The feeling of, of collective energy and enjoyment is quite palpable when you look particularly at those early movements. People had never felt so good at being together and being able to say what they felt. It was like freedom. Yeah, that political correctness, I mean, and that became almost one of the banners that they would carry as well is, you know, we, we, we got to quit being politically correct. But they, they, I guess they also speak in a, a code. Um, and Donald, I guess, through this whole thing, Donald was able to to, to really maneuver in such a way um, these fears, these concerns, I guess in a way better than at least 16 or 17 GOP contenders that were fighting for the presidency. What What made his appeal so powerful? You know, man, I've come to the conclusion I don't know that Donald Trump actually is as strategic as many people think. I think he's a person who actually doesn't totally understand himself. But in that sense, he has presented an option for people. One of the really interesting things is how people think and speak of Donald Trump, and they say he's honest. Now, when you listen to the contradictory things he says, you think, what on earth do they mean by honest? But what they actually say is that the point at which he's speaking, he speaks from his heart, he speaks from what he's feeling. It's like a stream of consciousness. Everything that goes on in his head goes out into his tweet. And actually they see that as honest, as opposed to the careful, calculated speech that they might have seen Hillary Clinton um, putting, pulling together with great seriousness. They actually say he's honest in his discrepancies, in his conflicts as well. So in that sense, that's something they like. Perhaps it's got something to do with how they recognize that many, many politicians politicians really do hone and tune what they say so they'll get exactly right to get the votes for themselves. Uh, but I just get that. I don't know that Donald Trump actually is the best understander mm. of himself. And I think that he's been one of the most, if you look at the behavior and the things that he says, you can see he himself doesn't understand why he's creating so much chaos now within the White House and indeed within the world. Yeah, that's a, it's an interesting point, isn't it? Uh, and we want to attribute it to something but it, because sometimes it's so irrational, everyone else tends to question, you know, is he sane? Is he healthy? Um, but but you bring up a, a really good point. I mean, th- there are people that are hurting and people that that wanted something different. They wanted more honesty. They wanted more, I guess, transparency. They wanted um, – they, they didn't want necessarily presidents to go be able to make millions and tens and hundreds of millions of dollars off of their work without getting something done for them. And, and I, I think, you know, this is why um, the decision was actually made to write about the followers, because in a way Trump is not really the problem, surprisingly, uh, as it may seem to say that. It's actually the followers. 
You know, it's really interesting. I had an eye-opener some years ago. I work on the East Coast, and I work in Cambridge and Boston, and it's very hard to find people who aren't democratic. So I was delighted to find when a follow when somebody came to fix my television, and he was an avid supporter of um, President Trump. And I sort of gently said, in the way liberals do, you know, well, maybe he's getting it wrong in Iraq. And I can remember he put the tools down on the floor. He was kneeling by the TV, and he looked up at me, and he said, I don't care. If President Bush is wrong, he is strong, and that's what I want in a leader. And it's really interesting. Uh, all, the, all the research shows that all over the world, people would actually prefer a president who was strong than one whom they saw as weak. And what they mean by weak is somebody like Obama, who consults with people, who thinks about things, who debates upon things, and then says what he wants. They actually love people to shoot from the hip, and they, they love the fact that he's portraying strength. They want him to be their man, as it were. And this is not unusual, frankly, in most other parts of the world. I think we're hitting now in the United States, and this desire for somebody that is strong and also simple in the way he explains things. I mean, he, Donald Trump is very simple language. It's got none of the sophistication of most of the other politicians. And believe it or not, people like that. Hmm. So they feel he's strong, he's simple, he's with them. And it really is true. They wouldn't mind spending an evening in the bar with Donald Trump, whereas they might hate spending it with some of the other 14, 15 d- different candidates. That's interesting. In fact, you bring up a really, uh, in your article um, for Scientific American that you edited, you bring up a lot of great content from your book about his rallies. Uh, Trump, yeah. I mean, his rallies really show you how he works and how he would create this image of strength. Maybe talk about that. I mean, one of the things you do, you have a really strong caveat. There's a lot to learn about um, about Germany and, and Hitler and how Hitler got the people to follow him. Mm-hmm. And you're not equating Trump to Hitler, but some of the methodologies of, of moving people and getting people bought in uh, Trump u- that Trump used uh, were similar to what Hitler used. Yeah, and again, I go back to that. I think Hitler was very strategic and knew what he was doing. I think less so Donald Trump. The rallies are fascinating. And there's great energy. There's a great camaraderie. There's a great feeling of being at a show. It's a bit like being at a circus. Now, the really interesting thing is people will used to queue for hours to get in. But they started to drift away when when the rallies went on too long. And when President, uh, then uh, candidate Trump, started to talk about the details, they really actually left the arena. They were not interested. They didn't want to know the exactitude. Most politicians like to tell people exactly what they think. But these people just wanted the strength and the simplicity, and they wanted to leave the rest to him. They were bored of the rest. Now, interestingly, um, I've been watching some of the rallies he's been returning to. Um, I think in the hope that he will get back his joie de vivre that has kept, that kept him going during those rallies. And as we all know, he's having a, a tough time. But if you watch, um, I'm wondering how long that energy will continue, because he himself actually is beginning to sound um, very tired. And it was partly his energy that was getting people going. They were swept up by it. So I think there's also a mutedness beginning to happen on the part both of the, uh, an exhaustion on the part of the president, and also a lesser clarity on the part of his followers, because they now realize, well, the simplicity that they had, that they saw in terms of the candidate, perhaps is not as simple as they thought. 
This does not mean, by the way, that they will stop supporting him because once you've almost, I mean, it is almost like falling in love with somebody. Once you've put your heart somewhere, it actually, there actually has to be quite a discrepancy before you will actually take your heart back. We can, we'll actually do all sorts of mind games in order to stay caring for somebody, in order, in order to stay respecting someone. But there's no doubt that it's not, um, it's unlike a cult, it's not a very strategic cult that President Trump has created. It's actually a, a follower crowd who loved his energy loved his simplicity, loved his strength, loved that he said all the things that, they, that many of them actually felt, loved that he agreed with them, that there were strangers in their land that shouldn't be there, almost loved the fact that uh, many of them, uh, as you see in the article, think that the Constitution says the United States is a Christian nation. It doesn't say anything of the sort, but they believe that he says it and that he is on, on their side. So how long this will, energy will continue will be really interesting. The, the problem is I don't think that any of the other candidates are actually rapport, have the same sort of rapport huh. that actually a candidate Trump has. And I think that's going to be a problem in the future for yeah. them. Yeah. How can politicians follow this? Right, yeah. And who can step in with the same energy and... Huh. And it, simplicity. Yeah. I and mean, people like it to be simple. They don't want to know the details. And this is where politicians often get it wrong. I happen to know, actually, both, um, I happen to have met, because I work in Northern Ireland, both President Clinton and Hillary Clinton. And it, certainly some of the people who voted for Trump were people who couldn't take um, Clinton. And when you look at it, it, you begin to wonder why, because she is so intelligent, yeah. she is so strategic, all of these. But she, on the other hand, she doesn't actually have the same uh, sort of instinctive warmth that her husband had. Yeah. And that Donald Trump portrayed, and he loved the rallies. He was at his best at the rallies, and the people got caught in that. It's too, she's too heady a person almost to do that. And different people would vote for her than would vote for him. But I think it is going to be setting the marker, as it were, as to where politics goes in the future is going to be really interesting and it quite really difficult. Is. Let's do this. Let's take a break. Uh, we're speaking with Mari Fitzduff, author of the book Why Irrational Politics Appeals. And uh, we'll come back, continue the journey, the discussion, find out uh, what it looks like in the future. What and, and what really what's going on on in, I guess, all through Europe as well. With Brexit um, and what's with the what's with the, the 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 maybe mistrust of globalization and what does that do to our future? Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Today we are talking about the irrational appeal of uh, politics, and apparently, um, we, we follow we follow people that are strong. They may not be even clued in; they may not be informed necessarily, but they speak strength and they speak with simplicity. And for a lot of us, that's that's all we need, you know. Uh, we need we don't need the the wonk we we always hear about how you know many people love uh, president obama who loved to supposedly study issues he was he and and hillary clinton very wonkish loved the issues probably didn't nobody knows more than hillary on so many issues and yet she wasn't of appeal well won the general election hello um yet so here we sit and our guest today is uh 
Mari Fitzduff. She is the author of Why Irrational Politics Appeals, Understanding the Allure of Trump. She's also the founding director of the International Master's Program in Conflict Resolution and Coexistence at the Heller School at Brandeis University. She was also previously the first CEO of the Northern Ireland Community Relations Council, which developed and funded most of the peacebuilding programs in Northern Ireland. Mari, thank you again for being with us. Good to be with you, Matt. You understand conflict, obviously, from Northern Ireland uh, to to your conflict resolution program. Talk to us about – so we really are kind of irrational then when it comes to – who we choose for president. It, it almost doesn't seem like we're, we're always choosing maybe the best candidate, but the one that, uh, the one that I, I guess we feel fits us the best. Yes. I mean, the, the reality is we choose the person that we think we need at this current moment in time. And we actually do it very quickly. The research is fascinating. I mean, even if you're just putting pictures in front of people, with, even before they start thinking, they recognize things like a body that they see as strong, clear, etc., etc. So the, the interesting thing is, if that is the truth, um, how do we actually um, study the context? so that it doesn't necessarily become the whole truth for some people. Remember that um, there was certainly, uh, the world is changing, and people are somewhat afraid, and they see new faces, new colors, and they see them with suspicion. Interestingly, the places that voted in Europe, to rem- or in the United Kingdom, to remain in Brexit, were actually places like London, which overwhelmingly voted to remain. And mm. the interesting thing is, they are the most mixed-race cities that you can get. So in a way, we are moving inevitably towards mixed-race economies and countries. There's no doubt about that. The mobilization is is obvious. We are moving towards a world that's inevitably going to be mixed. You know this in the United States when by 2050, I think the the sort of white majority will be gone. It's this in-between time because once you actually get there and once you live in it and once your partners or your children are are different color to you and different ethnicities, then you actually begin to relax into it and you realize that your fear is, is and misfounded. But in this in-between time, when we see others as different, is a real problem. Now, I have to say that all the studies that we have done show us that noticing that people are different is inevitable. Anybody who says they don't notice that somebody is black or white or a woman or brown or whatever is lying. Hmm. We do notice because it's actually in our DNA, it's in our, our temperaments. That's what kept us safe. Who's with us? Who's against us? Who do we have to be afraid of? It's actually what we do with that noticing uh, that can be the difficulty. And when it's so strange to you and you hear perhaps rants about certain groups, etc., then inevitably that fear is deepened. But it does ease as we have more and more contact between people and as we become more and more mixed. So in that sense, we're moving towards a future that inevitably will belong to all of us. It's just an in-between time when we're sort of settling in, as it were, to living with people who are very different. And don't forget, um, in the United States, there was a disproportionate number of people in terms of history. I think it's 40 million people who hadn't been born in the United States out of 300 million. Wow. In Europe, it was the extra figures that were coming in in terms of immigration that were worrying people. Now, in my own home country, Ireland, they've had about a steady 10% living there who are not from Ireland. And that actually seems feasible and possible. They seem to have managed it pretty well. And they've had some very good leadership, which makes a huge difference. But where you see it as disproportionate and you see you and who you are and your identity being swamped, that's when the issue arises in terms of can I be comfortable with people who are different? And if I can't, are there people, people are 
articulating a philosophy that I will go along with in terms of them being the enemy. It's not that people, um, it's not that people are instinctively racist, as it were, but they associate difference with a threat to them and their mm. jobs and their people. Yeah, and all the Syrian refugees and, and the big push about that. And that is something interesting. Donald Trump pushed very hard against that. Is Does some of this have to do with the fact that so many, in, in the United States at least, identity politics was becoming such a a mainstream um, you know, a technique yeah. that was being used by, I guess, especially Democrats. Uh, maybe it was everyone was using it. But um, it, it seems like Trump's kind of a backlash to this identity politics thing. Well, I would say, um, you know, we do a lot of stuff about what life is worthwhile, etc. You know, after food and sex and shelter, belonging somewhere is the next most important need. Who am I? Who do I belong to? Who is my tribe? And I say, you know, Trump voters found themselves a tribe, disparate as they were. I think the, the joy of belonging to a tribe, uh, I mean, we actually know hormonally there's a, a hormone called oxytocin mm-hmm. that actually is released when we're with people that we actually enjoy being with. It makes us feel so good about ourselves. And also it makes us feel bad about others who are outsiders. So I do think none, somebody who tells me that they don't want to belong to any group, I really, really challenge that because it's such a basic need. And I think what's happening is in the uncertainty of the world, we're all trying to find basic groups. Or, sorry, we're not trying to find them. They're finding us, groups to which we feel we belong. So, for instance, identity politics is interesting in terms of race. Now, as we know, race in terms of color spans a whole variety. But, you know, we take an essentialist in terms of race like black. The big question certainly for, for, for many people is, at, am I actually black? What if I have, mm. for instance, I have a colleague who is black but has Irish blood, has um, Native American blood. You know, the whole question of who I am and where do I fit is often important, and it's often more important than life itself. Luckily enough, the United States is not dealing with too many people who are full-blown um, jihadists, as it were. Right. But joining jihad is very often about a belonging that people are seeking for and mistakenly seeking one that actually involves violence towards others. So uh, w- in, the, in an uncertain world where things are happening so quickly and so many avenues of communication, it's probably inevitable that we want to find somewhere where we feel at home, whether it's our family, our neighbours, or whether it's the voters of a particular people or of a particular colour. I think that's what's happening. We need that for the moment. Um, and working through the fact that we're actually moving towards um, a future that is inevitably going to be much more nuanced in terms of identity is something that I think we have to live through. Is And I guess belonging, because it seems like a lot of people... Uh you know, maybe voted for Trump, but are discouraged by some of his positions or so I guess you only need to belong enough. It doesn't have to be a perfect fit, but you have to feel like you belong enough. Well, you know, one of the my own particular doctor many, many years ago was uh, interviewing paramilitaries who had joined and the IRA and the Ulster Volunteer Force, which is the Protestant force. Yeah. And one of the things they very shamefacedly admitted to me, uh, almost every one of them was that they never felt more alive than when belonged to those particular groups and they were out on a night of action. Hmm. So this question of actually feeling truly belonging, one of the sad things that I sense will happen is as people continue to go to these rallies, the sense, that original sense of belonging that they felt is probably going to be diminished. It's probably going to dissipate over the, the months and the years as things inevitably get more complex, as they always do. I mean, Trump's simplicity served him well on the campaign trail, but we see how challenging it is that he's now in power. 
And actually, you know, in a sense, I get a sense of these people who see yet another dream going, a dream on top of the dream they once had for their children. So I feel that inevitably there's going to be tremendous disappointment on the part of his followers. Uh, it will take some time because we don't like to let go of the fact that, you know, we felt good, we felt great, we felt we knew who we were, we felt we could speak our minds. That's something people want to hang on to for mm. quite some time. But inevitably this is going to, to crumble, and I fear that disillusionment is already beginning to settle in in terms of things are certainly not going to change overnight or even next month or even while maybe dreadful to think about it while President Trump is in power. Well, and it's interesting, too. I guess he doesn't have to get a million uh, success stories. He just needs five, six things to simply go point to. Yeah, this is what I've done. There you go. Did that, Mm -hmm. did that and take credit for things. Um, But then, too, the opposition or the Democrats in the United States and the anti-Brexiters um, I, I guess you you still have to make a better argument. You still have to draw the votes to get things to change. Do you sense in the future um, that you you were talking earlier that boy you don't necessarily see a challenger that can take him on yet? Mm. I, I think I mean this in a sense did what's happened both in Brexit and in um, voting for President Trump is that there's a lesson there. I sometimes say. If only we had put the new industries into the Rust Belt. Right. But people had new ways of using their engineering skills, new ways of using their technological skills, their communication skills. This would not have happened if all of us had just kept an eye on who is being left out, who, contrary to those of us who see ourselves as the liberals who are running a fast-changing world, what about the people who see their children are not actually gaining from this, that the skills that they used to have are gone and they're not needed anymore? You know, the, the idea that, they're, that the, the height of President Trump's dream is to have the children of the Rust Belt going down the coal mines again. I mean, this is just so uh, worrying. But we do need to know that every person uh, has, uh, needs to have something to live for, needs to have a dream to go for, needs to have something above all for their children to yearn for. And because we didn't take notice of that enough and didn't provide enough opportunities and possibilities for it, we are where we are, both in terms of Europe and the United States. And I think that that is a big lesson for us. I think the other lesson is democracy is not as simple as we think. It's interesting that people were very confused. They thought there were two different uh, uh, structures for Obamacare and Affordable Care Act. When you study it, it is actually our immigrants who become citizens who actually know much more about about the American society. It's really the, the ignorance that people have in terms of how things work. I hear people on one hand saying, get government out of my life, and then not noticing that Medicare or Medicaid or Social Security is government. People really don't understand how society works. And therefore, decisions are much more easily taken. Now, there's there's quite a lot of work being done on what we call deliberative democracy to actually counter this, which is, and Europe has had a lot of it um, beginning over the last few years because they recognize the threat, where actually you take random people together. It's quite extraordinary here in Ireland, uh, which was very much a Catholic nation. So they had a random assembly of people who were literally pulled in from the telephone book at random and put them together to discuss difficult issues like abortion. And it is 
really interesting to see how people then have to really begin to think mm. through issues that they feel very strongly about. And a lot more of that, in Northern Ireland we've had to do this in terms of our schools because we had people killing each other just because they were different identities and saw each other as having power or using violence. And our children are now, uh, they, they're de- we are demand of our teachers and our schools that we look at a form of deliberate democracy where we look at the different groups in it and um, what the whole thing means in terms of immigration, in terms of identity, in terms of ethnicity. So I think being much more careful about our democracy is something that um, we actually really do need to take account of because we can see the decisions, certainly in uh, Europe, the feeling that we didn't pay enough attention and therefore people voted on the basis of feelings, many of whom are actually going to, the people, are going to be the people who will suffer mm. when the inevitable Brexit happens. No, I think that's right. And we, it, it, again, it's such, it, it, it's, our leaders are paid to make it complicated and boy, it doesn't have to be half as complicated if, if, if we can get in on the ground level and have these conversations. It seems a little easier to have them with just two of us, maybe five or 15 of us, and a mediator like uh, Mari Fitzduff than it is when you bring in a bunch of politicians. Well, we appreciate uh, Mari Fitzduff. Again, the book, Why Irrational Politics Appeals, uh, Understanding the Allure of Trump. You can find out more of uh, what Mari's doing at Brandeis University. Just Google her, Mari Fitzduff. We'll take a break, folks. Come back, wrap up hour number one. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Coach would have put me in fourth quarter. We'd have been state champions. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! So let's pretend like we could take the liberal and the Democrat or the Republican GOP conservative out of it and just make us a bunch of Americans that want to feel like we belong. Would you say overall that President Bush did a great job of making the other half of the body politic feel like they belong? Did President Obama do a good job of that? Did President Clinton going back? I mean, are these people great at reaching over the aisle to the other side? And I wonder if we could if we could be better at reaching across the aisle to make the other side feel heard and understood instead of just oppressed and beat down in the political world, um, if we wouldn't be better off? And can we, does our body of politics allow that? And who's leading that? The constituencies, the, the voters? Are they the ones that wouldn't allow that? Or is it the politicians? Or is it really just that a lot of the issues are so divided and we have a lot of people with a lot of money fighting on both sides of the issue? It's amazing to me that when you're talking about Trump and the all of the tension that we feel in this country, it comes back down to a very basic universal need of everybody needing to belong. Humans, no matter how different we want to pretend like we all are, we all just want to belong and feel safe. It's just basic human need. So use it. Uh, if you're in a position of power and you're in charge of a group, Make sure you're crossing the the aisle and understanding what the others need, because if you don't, it will swing. And just as surely as it has swung toward the GOP, it will swing back toward the Democrats. That's the crazy ride that we're on. It's a... 
it's it's going to swing if we won't do what has to be done by reaching across the aisle. We'll take a break, my friends. Come back. Continue the journey with us. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hour number two of the program. If you missed the first hour, go check it out on iTunes, on TuneIn, on Stitcher, BYURadio.org. It's everywhere. Uh, MattTownsend.com. You can find it everywhere. Hey, we got a great uh, show for you today as we are celebrating um, a day not to be forgotten. This is National Hole in My Bucket Day. We suggest you take this song and sing it through the office all day long. And just see, just see if it doesn't elicit some emotional response from your you're, people. You're pretty much guaranteed a, an emotional response. Really? Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, you're going to get some form of emotion. A slap in the face. Uh, a pink slip. Ooh. Yeah. Someone will key your car. Slash your tires. And why don't you just, instead of singing, go fix your bucket, you lazy hole in the bucket person. And quit complaining about it. Right. And quit singing. Okay. This is good. Oh, great. It's louder. By the way, the song has origins in the 1700 Germany. Uh, It's about a back and forth conversation between Henry and Liza. Henry needs to fix his leaky bucket. And in each stanza, Henry asks Lisa for advice. In the end, he needs a bucket to carry water to repair his bucket. Can you imagine if we did this with every mundane detail of our day? Some say that we do. It's called texting. Matt, what time What time did you come in? Did you come in? Did you come in? What time did you come in, oh, Matt? What time? <laughs> if I had a gun sound, I'd use it right there. But think about it. With an email, right? You send an email. You send a oh, text. Yeah. You're asking a question. Do you then wait? That person then responds with the answer. But then maybe it's not exactly the answer you wanted. So then you have to send another message clarifying. Yeah. And then they have to realize what just happened and okay they're clarifying and then respond back when you could have just walked over to their office sat down and said hey what about this it's finished in like a minute and you walk out the door well and then you have to reply thank you but you reply all and then that person replies all you're welcome smiley face and then you reply with oh thank you for the you're welcome so we're doing this every day yeah. it's just not about a hole in the bucket it's mainly well something. and the neat thing with instagram and facebook is you can also you don't have to sing it you could you could do you could text it, you oh. could show pictures of it, you could do boomerangs where you're doing little dances. Right. I mean there's really no end to the just the exhaustion that you could <laughs> compel others to experience. And we haven't fixed the problem. No. We're just avoiding face to face communication. Yeah. Even though in the song apparently they're face to face, they're just being really wordy about it. We would never do that here. No. No, we wouldn't do that here. But <laughs> Uh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, moving on. Today we're going to be talking about uh, the secret to remembering your vacation. 
it, it involves this same theory. Don't drink alcohol? That's one way. Yeah. A lot of people go on vacation just to drink. That's crazy. Like, why would you want to go just to forget it? Mm. Like, you're spending a lot of money to get to the Bahamas. Don't you want to remember it? <laughs> well, I mean, between, like, port and the Bahamas, what's there to remember? Well, but it also it's seems like... the like, ocean. Well, the, yeah, but you it's could like, wake eh. up in a skiff, you know, my, many miles offshore. There'd be a story there, wouldn't there? And you wouldn't remember it at all. Yeah, but you could also be <laughs> floating for days. Eh. You've heard the stories. Uh, Andrea Bartz will be joining us talking about um, some of the latest research about remembering your vacation. One of the best ways is maybe put your camera down, dear Liza. Dear Liza, <laughs> dear Liza. Put your camera down. I went to a uh, basketball game. I took two or three pictures, sent them to mom, just sat there with my kid. The person in front of us, the woman in front of us took probably 90 pictures. Oh, see, Didn't that, watch the game. Was my, Is that my wife? No, but she's just more focused on looking down the aisle at her family and getting pictures yeah. and Instagram no, and Twitter and we've Facebook. We've got everything and, like that. It's, it's, yeah. I start to worry because I don't ever take a picture. Everyone grabs their phone to start taking pictures of these things, and I'm like, eh, my wife will get it. Right. So I don't take any, but I – I kind of enjoy the moment. I mean, I'm in the moment. Yeah. Should I be taking more pictures? I feel weird. Like I, I, th- I think your your mind is more focused on what the picture should look like, not necessarily what's happening. And you're not you're not actually there. You're busy playing with your phone. You're not actually trying to you know be part of this moment that yeah. you're trying to remember with a photograph that's so important. But by doing that, you're not actually there. I think you're right. Yeah. But what about for the people that whose memories are fleeting them? Well, that's a whole different story. Or at least cut the photograph down to maybe one or two. But people take like 20? Well, yeah. <laughs> I, we down. have, I think, 12,000, 15,000 photos on our drive. And I don't – we never go through and look at them. No. Because you're too busy taking more photos. Yeah. But you could look back and go, remember that? You're like, well, not really, but I remember taking the picture. And then you also have this incredible <laughs> worry that what if I lose all of these pictures? Oh, yeah. Because I don't even remember the event because I was taking all these pictures. And I'll have to use my brain. Yeah. See? You know. You know how this works. So we'll get to all that fun straight ahead. Uh, again, continuing to c- celebrate also National Hole in the Bucket Day. But we won't play the song again because it's so annoying. Um, <laughs> sorry. 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 Hey, fix your bucket. Okay, we'll get to that. But first to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on? A mock intercontinental ballistic missile launch by the U.S. over the Pacific Ocean was successfully shot down Tuesday by an upgraded long-range interceptor missile, the Missile Defense Agency said in a statement. So they shot down a bullet with a bullet. Sounds Appropriate. Yeah. Uh, very difficult to do. Yeah, that's a cool test. So the ground-based interceptor launched from California's Vandenberg Air Force Base, destroyed the target in a direct collision. The defense agency said since 2002, more than $40 billion has been invested in the uh, missile defense agency's uh, program to be able to inter- intercept these missiles. Uh, this, of course, came right after North Korea over the weekend tested a, a new missile system. It went 243 miles and fell into the ocean. You know, basically, it entered the height necessary to actually get to the United States if they could actually get their rockets to fly that far. Huh. So, point, it's a point of concern, and now they're just getting to the point now where we have some sort of uh, capability to shoot something like that down. Yeah. 
The problem with it, though, is um, what is CNN reports that two out of the last five attempts have been successful. That's only 40% success rate since 2010 with this program. Really? So, you know, they're, they're, the, the defense agencies are kind of doing a victory lap on this, but it's only about 40% effective if you look at the last few tests. Yeah. So we'll see where it goes. Well, but because really this is for the North Koreans. That's kind of what's happening. I mean, happening we're sending a message, yeah. but because the North Koreans, their testing is perfect. Always. Yeah. Always. In fact, North Korea has ordered the development of a more powerful weapon as a mean of sending a, quote, bigger gift package to the Yankees, the state news agency in North Korea quoted leader Kim Jong-un is saying. Huh, wow. A bigger gift package to the Yankees. Like the baseball team, the Yankees? I was confused, but I hmm. think he means... I think he means the Yanks, the Americans. Like us. That's offensive. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Pennsylvania's Three Mile Island uh, power plant will close in 2019, 40 years after it was the site of the worst nuclear accident in the U.S. history as low natural gas prices make cost of atomic energy uncompetitive. As owner said on Tuesday, the plant's name has been synonymous with public fears over the risk associated with the nuclear power since the plant suffered a partial meltdown in 1979, sparking sweeping new rules for handling emergencies at nuclear sites. Um, if you remember the movie X-Men Origins, oh boy. and I know you do, Matt, Wolverine, they featured Three Mile Island and revealed that the meltdown was actually a huge cover-up of a government facility that was experimenting on huh. mutants as part of the Weapons X program. That's what year was that? The movie? Yeah. It was this all it took place in 1979. Yeah, but see isn't it weird now that Trump's president? Just saying. Do we really know if it was a meltdown or was it just a mutant? Cuz I said no one was really affected. That's where the ninja turtles came from, right? No, Deadpool. But that's a whole different story. Okay. Um also Samsung yeah. They uh, may resell refurbished editions of the infamous Galaxy Note 7. Ah! They're rebranding it, calling it the, ga- the Galaxy Note FE. Fire Extreme. Fandom Edition. Really? Yeah. So, as you recall, Samsung ceased production of the phone and all that good stuff, and now they're recycling. Trying to figure out a way. Today, this was last week, a report from a Korean news outlet, ET News, said these handsets may be called the Galaxy FE. Uh, Though the name may seem overly pandering to its fans, it may not be all that misguided. January Verizon told Fortune magazine that thousands of people were still using their Note 7s. Yeah, why not? Despite Samsung reportedly uh, saying that 93% of all the devices had been returned. Yeah, you got to refurbish those, right? (laughs) Send those out. Put in a non-explosive battery, non-yeah, and then I'll give them to kids in the inner city. Uh If Samsung would do that, unbelievable. And a question for you. I just yeah. saw this on, on Twitter. On the Today Show, they have their third, fourth hour, whatever. It's kind of a chuckle fest, I guess you could call it. Um, but you have uh, Al Roker, the weather guy. He's out there talking about something that uh, one of the uh, Today Show hosts, Savannah Guthrie, talked about, that she brushes her teeth in the shower. I do, too. And Is that bad? I don't know. Um, I shave was, in the shower. She, she was saying she needed to be more efficient in the shower. She's not just a weatherman. Yeah. She has things to accomplish during the day. You got stuff to do. She doesn't have all day like Al Roker. Yeah, it's pretty funny. But and he was accusing her of being lazy. She actually has a, a toothbrush out by the mirror. Yeah, yeah. And then one in the shower. So she has two toothbrushes, two she's toothpaste. Rich. She's got two toothbrushes. Because right? she can't just <laughs> – she says she's lazy. Yeah. She can't just reach in and no, grab no, the no. other one. So my question is, is that something to do in the shower, brush your teeth? Yeah. Depends on if the water is the drop-off water or you're getting it from the shower head. I try mm. to get the water from above, not from below. 
<laughs> aim high. Grandma taught me that rule. Aim high. Always get the water from above. This seems like something maybe you don't need to do in the shower. Well, but it, it is timely, right? Like, so I save time by shaving, brushing my teeth, and showering. Mm. And also, sometimes I'll make an omelet. <laughs> oh, great. In the shower. Just didn't seem like she. She said that she felt like a lot of people actually do that. Oh yeah, I, I'm with her. Brush your teeth in the you shower. You do. Yeah, we're all, we're not all weathermen. I just I don't know. I Does think it maybe... really save any time though? Yes, because it's two minutes. You're supposed to brush. Yeah, for but two you minutes. have two minutes in the shower, just absorbing the yum yumness. Aren't you just wasting more water? water? Sure. Okay. So the two minutes that you would spend in the shower brushing your teeth could just as easily be spent outside of the shower. Yeah, but looking no at time yourself wasted. in the mirror. But you could be enjoying the warm water as it soothes your body and your aching muscles. Or you can be looking, freezing, drip drying. We'll get dressed first. Listen, some of us like to watch ourselves brush our teeth, okay? <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. You know what I think is weirder than that are the people that brush their teeth at the office – yeah. In the bathrooms here. Now, I get it. I get oral hygiene. Mm-hmm. I mean, I get it. That's great. This is a public restroom. Yes. Where I'm sure many things you've never thought of being cleaned in those sinks have been cleaned in those sinks. Right. Mops, no. feet. Those bathrooms are cleaned every morning. Our bathrooms are incredible here. Yeah. But, but, but like, nonetheless, yeah. you don't put your hygiene tool no. down on the counter in a public restroom. And what about the people that essentially take a shower at that same sink? Yeah, the guy, remember the one that always takes his shirt off? Yeah. Yeah, that's weird. I wish you'd stop that. Just strange. Hey, um, okay, well, we solved the problem of the day. Okay, so I guess you brush everyone, everyone it, brushes their teeth in the shower now. Let everyone brush where they want to brush. I want more time with warm water on my body so I get everything done there. Then it's just, then you just got to you know, make it look pretty after. Get out, make it look pretty. You're out of there. I am brush location agnostic, whatever you want to do. Really? That's yeah. great. Great. Hey, uh, what would happen if somebody gave you stale fries at a Wendy's? Say, could I get some new fries? Yeah, please? hey, my these are stale. Can yeah. I get some new fries? Take them back. Maybe ask for a Frosty to compensate me. Yeah. Mm. I'll eat the stale fries if you'll give me a Frosty to dip them in. Yeah. No. A Minnesota woman is in jail after she allegedly got so upset over stale fries that she ended up spraying mace through the drive through window at a Wendy's employee. Huh. Seems like a measured reaction. Yeah. 25-year-old Iram Channel Amir Dixon is now facing um, a felony charge for the use of tear gas to immobilize uh, while protecting – not while protecting self-property. Apparently, you can immobilize people if you're protecting your property. Well, weren't the fries? Well, I guess she wasn't protecting them. No. She was rejecting them. She was rejecting them. According to the criminal complaint, multiple employees told the same story. They stated that Dixon allegedly came to the drive-thru window, ordered food, and requested French or fresh French fries. Um, She wanted them fresh, you know. You always do. Um, She then began to argue and reportedly tried to reach through the drive-thru window. One of the employees threw a soda at her before Dixon allegedly went back into her car. Oh, now you've... So you don't throw the soda at the customer. So here we go. So was the soda thrown before the mace? Sounds like it. She went back into her car, grabbed mace, and started spraying in through the window. One employee standing at the window was hit directly in the face, and uh, the report states the other two people reportedly got spray on them as well. Hmm. 
So she left with a felony charge and sticky body because of a right. beverage. And they left with burning eyes. But she reached through the window and tried to grab an employee. Is that what she yeah. did? Okay. Yeah. And then they responded by throwing the drink and then she grabbed the maid. Okay. Oh, no, okay. This, this is weird. I don't know if this woman heard our show, uh, an episode that we did previously. Why? What? This conversation was brought up on a different show and now there's a story about it. I think I've got the clip from the show. Now we'll just it's not going to stand the, the under the seat test. The what? The test where you drop a fly oh, under right. your seat and you find it three years later and it's perfectly oh, preserved. And then you stab yourself on the French fry and you have to go get a tetanus shot. Yes. That's the worst injury you can have is the the three-year-old fry injury. I agree. Um, unless, you know, you're like a fast food employee and someone maces you in the face for serving them the old fries. Mm-mm. Hmm. It's so weird that it's we had so the weird. exact same conversation. But you, you've you've apparently had this happen before. You knew that this could happen. I I guess this, I, I've only heard of the fry under the seat. I don't even really remember saying that. Yeah, I don't either. And I was there. So strange. Yeah, you got to watch out for those stale fries, folks. Come on, can't we all just get along? We don't need to hurt each other. But by the way, uh, Wendy's will be serving spicy hot. Chicken sandwiches. Flendies. Flendies. Did I say Flendies? Yeah. From Flendies. So not everything was lost. They did invent a new spicy hot chicken sandwich. We'll take a break, folks. When we come back, how to remember your vacations better. There's some things you might want to put away if you want to remember things. Stick with us. Did you know that technology can actually tamper uh, or hamper with your ability to remember the important moments in life? Cameras and smartphones are usually on every traveler's checklist, but our guest today has some advice on why we should just uh, leave some of those things in our hotel room. Uh, I mean, it may not be ideal, right? But it did uh, it did impact Andrea Bart's life. Uh, she's a Brooklyn-based journalist and copywriter who covers health, travel, psychology, and lifestyle, plus many other things. She also um, is a budding thriller novelist and uh, is is doing what she can to to grow that as well. Andrea, thank you so much for being with us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. So here you are, a journalist, and one of the great tools of a journalist would be your cell phone and your camera. And you are on a, if I recall, you were in Uganda on a, going out on a safari almost, and you forgot your phone. Yeah, that's that's correct. So I, I rely on my, my iPhone pretty heavily when I'm traveling for taking photos, for taking notes, stuff like that. And um, I was in Murchison Falls, an area of Uganda that's right on the Nile. And uh, my friends and I were leaving on a boat safari, a water safari, where we were going to be on kind of like a mini pontoon boat cruising up, cruising up the Nile River, wow. getting really close to animals. Uh, right? So like supposed to be one of the coolest experiences of my life. And we had just... <laughs> departed from the dock when I realized, oh my gosh, I left my phone charging at the charging station in the in the, the lodge's sort of main area. So, you know, I didn't want to make us turn around. I knew we had a schedule and off we went. Um, and it was, as I had predicted, one of the really coolest afternoons <laughs> of my life. We got 
you know, right up into the middle of a herd of elephants. We came within a few feet of this 12-foot crocodile that just looked at us and sort of hinged open its jaw. And um, we we paused near Murchison Falls, which is a, a huge waterfall where the entire Nile squeezes to about 20 feet across. And we oh, hiked wow. to the top. And it was just incredible. And I was so kind of bummed the whole time that I didn't have my phone. But, you know, my friends around me were snapping plenty of photos. And I was just looking. And I didn't have sort of the screen in front of me to... Uh, to, to filter everything. And what I discovered was that even though I'd been to a lot of different amazing places on this trip, I saw different regions. We were in, you know, the near volcanoes. We were in the rainforest. We were on the Nile. We were out in the dusty savanna. I realized that when people asked me about the trip, the day that kind of came back with the most clarity to me that I remembered the best and really had the clearest, sharpest memories from was this day that I didn't have my phone. Huh. And I thought, that's interesting. And so... Uh, that's kind of why I began looking into it and what might be behind that. I mean, I I never take pictures. I don't know. Um, my wife does, so I think that's why I don't. If if something happened to her, I would never document any part of my life ever again. Um, well, but I guess that's the thing is that I I see I feel like I experience a lot of the stuff, but I'm I wonder yeah. if my kids and my wife do. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's kind of interesting because the way that you sort of rely on your wife to take the photos, you know that you're still going to get those photos photos taken, is sort of the same offloading that we do with cameras. We figure, I don't really need to uh, engage with this too directly or to remember it too too much because the camera's going to do it for me. I'm going to have these photos that I can always look back on. And sort of what will happen is you'll get to a point where you'll remember the photos of a trip, but you won't necessarily remember that moment. You'll hmm. sort of just remember the, the capturing you took of it. Um, and that's, you know, I think a little bit sad when you're trying to look back and, and really remember the experience of something. Yeah, I mean, because I guess then what we're really going for are photos. I mean, right. right? You're not even right. going for the experience anymore. You're just, you're kind of just going for the photos or the, the perfect we did it, the perfect um, selfie with an alligator. I mean, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, and it's, I don't think it's necessarily, um, you know, I don't think that people are being selfish. I don't think the idea no. is always, oh, I need to get the, I need to get the perfect Instagram so that I get accolades for this. I don't think that's the intention. You really just, it's amazing. And so your instinct is, oh my gosh, I have a camera. I better take photos. Um, but we're sort of depriving ourselves of something when we do that, I think. And then you found that the research backs this up. The the studies are showing that this is a true phenomenon. Yeah, absolutely. So the the there's been research on this, you know, especially in the last 10 years or so, finding that, um, you know, they set up really simple experiments and have people observe something and take photos or simply observe something. And those who simply observe something remember a lot more. They have more uh, details to their memory. They have more, it has more sort of emotional resonance. Um, and a study that had just come out this month, it's actually in, in press, that really stood out to me was all about family vacations. And it looked at the impact of smartphones on family vacations. Um, and everything from, you know, the planning of the trip to how you're using it when you're there. So not just the camera function, but... Uh, one of the findings that really stuck out to me was that uh, the more people engaged with their smartphones on their trip, the fewer, quote, autobiographic memories they have. So they might still remember things, but those detailed memories where you could really picture yourself being there, it's sort of part of who you are, that experience is part of your autobiography, those weren't really laid down in the same way if you were kind of 
stuck with your phone and stuck using your phone and, and checking it and taking photos and, and sort of disengaging from the environment. That's so interesting to me because we um, – boy, because the, the whole phone camera thing is really relatively new, right? And we've had mm-hmm. phones only a few years with cameras. But even the idea like you were talking about leaving your phone at a public charging station – just that thought would terrify me. Like, and I could see just that thought ruining the rest of the tour for me because I'd constantly be worried about my phone. Yeah, I mean, this is this is a little unusual because we were like the only humans for a few miles around, and I think we were the only ones at the, that tiny resort at the okay. time. We were, yeah. um, you know, a little eight eight cabin sort of resort. Uh, so I didn't, I wasn't worried about someone stealing it so much. But um, I was a little just <laughs> bummed that I wouldn't be able to use it the way that I was used to, the way that my default, you know, mode is. Yeah, it's. Um, we were joking that one of the best ways to remember your vacation would not just don't do any drinking. Um, th- then you'll be <laughs> able to remember. But idea. you bring up a really good point about uh, learning to be present. It seems like a lot of us struggle struggle with this mindfulness idea of actually being in the moment we're in. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think, I think that's a really important po- point that uh, I was doing some research on what um, sort of, you know, fights back against that and what can sort of um, get rid of that, that automatic instinct to, to offload onto your camera and not really remember it. And mindfulness is absolutely the key and you can kind of, you know, accomplish that in different ways. But um, certainly when you're on a vacation and it's something you've been looking forward to for, for months and you're so excited to be there, like, it seems like that would be worth worth trying to do, worth trying to actually make yourself enjoy it and experience it in the moment instead of just having a bunch of great Instagrams after. Yeah, so true. What uh, what do your friends say? Um, I mean, in, in a way, have you talked to your friends that were on the trip with you about this experience? Yeah, so it's interesting. I mean, I... I was mad that I didn't have my own camera, but also spoiled because it wasn't hard for me to get photos from them afterward, and yeah. they were all snapping away. Um, but one friend that I was on the trip with told a story that really stuck with me. She had been um, she'd been somewhere in like the rainforest in Southeast Asia. This was years ago, and she was kayaking with some friends, um, and suddenly this group of dolphins just appeared out of nowhere and just like played with them for maybe. 30 seconds, just, you know, jumping around their kayaks and splashing and this really sort of life-changing experience. And then they got, then they were gone. And one of the friends she was with spent the entire 30 seconds digging in his dry bag, trying to get out his camera so Hmm. he could capture it. He missed the entire thing. So I think once you have an experience like that, it it can kind of cue you to, um, to try to, you know, engage more with experiences and, and remind yourself, okay, I've got the shot. I'm not going to get, it doesn't look that different now than it did three seconds ago. I'm going to put down my camera and I'm going to actually look at it myself. Huh, that's great. No, it really is. Uh, let's do this. Let's take a break, Andrea. We'll come back and continue the discussion of an art, another article that you wrote about uh, why it's sometimes it's healthy to run away from your problems. And uh, you, you got to, sometimes you got to get away to, to get in. We'll take a break, come back more with Andrea Bartz, a wonderful writer and, uh, and really very insightful about life. Stick with us. We'll take a break.
Welcome back, friends. We're speaking with Andrea Bart. Uh, she is a writer based in Brooklyn and a copywriter who covers health, travel, psychology, lifestyle, plus many other topics. Her work has appeared in USA Today, The Wall Street Journal, and a whole constellation of other outlets. She's also a budding thriller novelist and former editor of several magazines. Today we're talking about an article she wrote. Uh, One was about the secret to remembering your vacation better, and another one is why it's healthy to run away from your problems from time to time. Andrea, welcome back. Thank you. So you're saying um, we, we need to sometimes we need to learn to stay in the moment. And even if you don't have a camera, just take it all in, soak it in. You'll retain it. It'll create a powerful memory. But other times you're suggesting we need to just run. Yeah. So this was sort of a lesson I learned myself from a from a pretty stressful situation at the beginning of the year. Um, so I was supposed to move on January 1st into a new apartment and early that morning, um, you know, just after all the revelers had gone to bed, a pipe burst in my new apartment and flooded the entire building. Uh, so I found this out when I was, you know, waking up or waking up on January 1st and had all my apartment packed and was ready to move. Um, and I had a trip scheduled for the following weekend to Antigua in the Caribbean. And it was supposed to be sort of this glorious, like, I got to my new apartment, I dropped all the boxes, and then I relaxed for a few days in this new place before I really started unpacking in earnest. And now suddenly, I didn't know where I was going to live. <laughs> um, and so some, some kind of wise friends gave me stage counsel to, you know, cancel the trip, reschedule the trip. This isn't a good idea. You have too much to deal with here. Um, I didn't even know all of the things that I needed to deal with, like cancel, you know, postponing a trip or postponing a uh, move the day of is turns out pretty hard and takes a lot of work. Um, and I ultimately decided not to and to just walk away from all of the problems and walk away from all of the to do's and go on this trip. And that was sort of um, ended up being exactly what I needed to do. Oh, no. so many parents out there are like, oh, come on, Andrea, <laughs> step up and I mean, face I- your life. I do have the benefit of, you know, no kids myself, so my responsibilities are mostly mostly to myself, uh, being a freelancer and being a, being not a parent. But I do think there is something to be said for when a situation is stressful and you recognize that you can't look at it clearly, um, just getting away can actually help you become more mindful about it and see it for what it is. Um, my favorite meditation teacher is Tara Brock. Uh, said in a recent podcast of hers that I was listening to, she said, um, how did she put it? She said, once you, you know, once you look at a, she said it better than this, but once you look at a situation uh, without trying to change it or without fighting it, suddenly you, you, you see it for more than the problems. You see hmm. for what it really is. And I was sort of stuck in that mindset of what do I do? <laughs> and getting away and breathing and being somewhere beautiful helped me to sort of figure out, okay, here are the things I can help with and here's what I need to do and here are the things that I can't change. I can't change the fact that, you know, there's two inches of water in my new apartment right yeah. now. Yeah. Well and you you your writing makes a really good point. In a building with eighty seven units, mine was the one with a pipe under the kitchen sink that decided to explode shortly after the clock struck twelve. Um it's it's interesting. I mean, sometimes it's just bad luck, right? And mm-hmm. but I what amazes me for some people, like I, I I know people that in the middle of the chaos of it all, the phone calls that had to be made, all of the problems, all of the issues, everything 
going crazy, they'll still at, they'll still answer their phone. Like they'll mm-hmm. still take mm-hmm. on three other challenges that they don't even know are happening. So you, you might be able to just go away by focusing all of your issues down to one right now. Like let's just let's just focus on this one problem. Uh, yeah. you, you, you're, you had multiple problems because you you also had to leave, and it was probably you were probably going to write about Antigua, and so you know this was still business. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was. I had you know a lot of factors going on, and and canceling canceling the trip would have been impractical for many many reasons. But um, I think that's a really good point. Even if you can't literally jet off to to the Caribbean, like I was, you know, fortunate enough to be able to do, um, just taking a step back and like maybe it's walking to the park maybe it's you know going and seeing a movie by yourself maybe it's having a really treating yourself to a really nice meal and just getting that tiny bit of distance that allows you to like see a situation for what it really is Mm. um just makes it so much easier to deal with because yeah you're right it's really easy to fall into that why me how am i supposed to you know why do i have to deal with this there's too much to do. Somehow you're taking on more stuff that you shouldn't even be worrying about because it's not your problem. Um, it's really easy to sort of like lose perspectives. And I think taking a step back, literally or figuratively, uh, can actually help with that. Again, that mindfulness of being able to sort of deal with the situation in a way that makes sense. Can't you see some people too feeling this um, weird social pressure to? I better be. I better live Facebook chat this. I better live cast this because I'm all my neighbors are going to all my friends are going to want to see what I'm going through. So you almost feel this need to like document everything. Oh my heavens, your house is flooding, your neighbors are flooding, you've got to move. And I know people that would like I better start taking pictures of this. We need to get yeah. this up on Instagram immediately. Yeah, there's an instinct to immediately share, immediately be documenting it. Um, I think for a lot of people, there's an instinct to immediately demonstrate how competent you are um, and to sort of, you know, simultaneously get the sympathy of, God, it really sucks that, you know, again, you're of the 87 units that's happened to yours. But also, like, look, I'm I'm the kind of person who deals with everything and everyone needs to see that. Um, And you don't. In reality, like, you don't have to be okay all the time. Like, you don't have to, you know, you don't have to always be on top of things and dealing with it like it's no big deal. You can... You can be upset. (laughs) Yeah. I was not happy. (laughs) Yeah. And and again, and, you know, find a way to leave. (laughs) I mean, Mm -hmm. go away, go away. I mean, these are great lessons. Is this how you get your your ideas, Andrea? It sounds like you just live life, and then you write about it. That's... I mean, that's one way to put it. Uh, I, I love writing first-person pieces. I love um, kind of taking the time to, to notice what's, what's interesting about um, something I'm struggling with or something a friend is struggling with, um, and then turning that into um, something that hopefully is helpful for other people. Um, and so I joke that I, I'm never not working because my poor friends, you know, will be having a conversation, you know, late on a Friday night over wine and suddenly I'll go, wait, let me grab my notebook because this is a story. This is an article. So, um, yeah, I'm just I'm, I'm intensely curious, like I think any good journalist. And so um, a lot of I, I really like kind of finding story ideas and finding um, bigger, more universal themes in in just everyday living in the mundane is. I mean, I guess what's powerful, though, is writing about it um, has got to be helping you to tie down your learnings. 
Like mm-hmm. you, you live life and you actually evaluate it and learn. Um, do, do you sense that your writing has helped you create more change in life? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. Um, but yeah, I think for me, I, um, I'm sort of very publicly dealing with and, and struggling with and learning all of the, you know, life lessons that I think everyone does in their twenties and thirties. Um, and for me being able to articulate, what did I really learn from this? Um, yeah, helps, helps solidify that lesson and helps me, uh, having to put it into words and really nail down what, what is unique and what is an, a real insight that I would like to share with other people, um, helps me solidify it for myself. Absolutely. That's a, I think it's just a great exercise for all of us. Well, we appreciate you, Andrea. Thank you for your time and your great, uh, your great insight. Again, people, you can find uh, her writings everywhere. Just look up Andrea Bartz. The Secret to Remembering Your Vacation Better is the one we've been talking about today. We will take a break, come back, and continue the journey. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer, love stronger, lead healthier, happier lives. Welcome back, friends. You know, as this is the show where we like to give you as much advice as we can because life isn't easy. And, you know, if you don't have your mom to call, who's going to give you advice anyway? You love that song, don't you? Yeah. Because I never wait for the drop. Just be grateful it wasn't this one. There's a hole in the bucket. Mm. Yep. She's still going. We started the show about two hours ago with... Uh, That's actually a little boy singing the first voice you heard. Oh, really? It's like, just fix the hole. Do you think over. he'd mature by now? Because he's been at it for two hours. His voice has got to be killing. Oh, that's cute. It's just the song that never ends. This is, this is what led to Barney's dinosaur song that never ends. Ugh. I think this, this is kind of... Uh, ooh, I don't like the message that is being portrayed here. That men are incapable of yeah. well, he keeps accomplishing going to anything. Liza to have Liza help her help him with the bucket. Yeah. Okay. Mm. Yeah. Turn that off. Turn it. Oh, I th- I said, sorry. I thought yeah. you said up. No, get it. Turn yeah, it up. Turn okay. It okay. So instead, let's take it another direction. And uh, Terry has been putting together his own list of the seven no keys. I found a list. Uh, seven lies that you feel are okay <laughs> to tell in your marriage. No. So Huffington Post. Oh, you're gonna blame this, it on Huffington. This article okay. says lies I tell my husband, and in parentheses that actually make our marriage stronger. Okay. That's where I was like, mm, because you, you, you being someone who counsels people yeah. in marriage relationships, we do that a lot. I'm going to imagine you try to advise people not to lie to yeah, each other. Yeah, I would say lying's not your best policy. Is it good to tell lies if you think it makes your marriage stronger? Well, I think the reality is we've talked about this on the show. Uh, we may not call those lies, mm. but you have to prioritize your truths. Okay. Right. So if your wife says, Mm. do I look fat in this? She probably isn't looking for just cold honesty. Mm. There's a deeper issue. She looks she's looking 
for some validation. She's looking. So it doesn't mean you lie. You just have to understand what her real motive is. So don't immediately say yes. Wait a few seconds. Well, try to understand. Honey, what do you what do you what do you mean? What are you looking for here? Just go. Yes. Oh, wait. Well, yeah, not fat. I mean, you look you look thick. Okay. (laughs) you don't say that. You're a you gotta, sturdy woman. You got to find out what her, what's her right. real objective. So okay. lies I'd be worried about, but th- this is Huffington Post. So we'll just take it with a grain of Huffington salt. <laughs> <laughs> They're funny. The, the, the first one they list is, um, no, you haven't gained any weight. Yeah. So the wife talking to the husband. And it says, my husband believes he is as slim as the day he met me. This, of course, is not the case. <laughs> but we all have our, fo- our foibles. We've... Both gained weight over the years. It's perfectly normal and perfectly fine in my eyes. I love him the way he is, and I don't care about the few extra pounds. Well, unless they're in the doctor's office, and he's like, have I gained weight? And you're like, no, you look great. No, you look fine. And then you step on the scale, and they're like, wait a second. Yeah, because it seems like he's got heart disease. Hmm. I'm just saying. So what should you do in that case? Again, there's a deeper issue here. Okay, okay. Like, I love you no matter how you look, but yeah, you've gained a few pounds but it doesn't make you less attractive to me. Hmm. I mean, do we want <laughs> do do you want your partner to lie? I mean, so when you're 45 pounds overweight. Have yeah. I I haven't gained any weight. No, you're right. Hmm. We don't trust anything then. Yeah, keep going. No, the next one is I still think you're hot. No, that's true though. My husband is not the dashing young man I married anymore. Other people may find find him or other people may find him the hottest thing on the planet, but I'm sure I sure don't anymore. I'm at peace with this. If he knew, he wouldn't. So in other words, she doesn't find him as hot as it was, but, you know, she's fine with that. Well, and what she needs to work on is how to make him look more hot to her. And so does he. So I don't consider that a lie. I think that's, you know, faking it to hoping something will happen to make you stay attracted. But, again, you got to work at it. Yeah, she has a very uh, – she's looking at it kind of as, as a practical thing. Yeah. And then how does she feel? Okay, but like there's like the visual and then there's the emotional. Let's just do something else. Let's just flip the entire scenario. Is she as hot as she once was? And right. are the other people hotter? I mean because the reality of life is there will always be people that are more attractive than you that will come around and – you may not know. The funny thing is, is, if I'm a betting man, he is still attracted to her, mm. and she may not be attracted to him. Wow. That men are a lot e- in a weird way. We're a lot easier to please. Right. Hmm. Men don't critique people's looks as much. Men don't actually critique their wife's looks probably as much as women critique their husband's looks. Who do you think would be more upset to discover that their spouse was lying, the husband or the wife? Hmm. I think the wife. Really? Well, yeah. I think the husband. Yeah. I mean, I. I, I You're lying, Dolores. He's not sitting there thinking, I hope she finds me attractive. Wow. Sounds like Harry Potter. The next one was, I love the gift you gave me. <laughs> Again, that's a, probably a healthy thing to say. Hey, it's great. It's great. Now, if you want him to keep giving bad gifts, you might want to learn to say something different. Well, maybe he's just being really vague. Like, I love the gift 
of love that you've given me, but yeah. you just omit the love part. <laughs> she writes, my husband does not make sound purchase decisions. In fact, I can't remember a single gift that he that has not been disappointing. It's baffling to me that after being married so long, he still doesn't know my tastes at all. At the same time, it's the thought that counts. You see, that's a great point. It is the thought that counts, except if it's probably he keeps giving the same. If I really honestly bet he keeps giving the same bad gifts, right? Because she's still she's been receiving bad gifts and accepting them with a lie forever. Oh, that's great. My husband put thought into each gift, however wrong he may be, and the thought is what makes each gift meaningful. That's what I appreciate. So the easiest, the easiest way to not be disappointed in a gift is just ask for something specific. Yeah, tell him exactly what you want. The guy can get it. And then the then to tack, you know, to top it off, the guy can give her like a foot massage or something yeah, he, a little more meaningful right, to him. Right. See? You get it. She says this and the next one is I don't mind going out with friends. When you do. Yeah. yeah. Again, sometimes you just got to bite your lip and go out with friends. So that's probably a lie that's fine at times. At times? Your wife, your spouse knows if you don't like going out with friends because you're the one that never invites a friend. Every That's time right. she says, oh, we're going out with the Joneses, you're like, oh, jeez, Joneses. She knows you don't want to go. Fine, let's go. Uh, the le- next one, I love your cooking. <laughs> <laughs> I love your cooking. See, my wife and I, this is why I don't cook. Yeah. I do other things to pull my weight, but I don't cook because I want to eat the food and enjoy it because I don't even enjoy yeah. when I cook. But what you know, you could learn to cook. I could, but Yeah, it's hard to change. Yeah. So the remember the, set in my the downside to lying to your partner is that they don't get a, a corrective feedback loop, so then they don't ever have to f- correct. Mm. So if you're always lying that their food is good, then guess what? You will eat cruddy food the rest of your life. You've perpetuated. The, so one of the rules that I use a lot with couples is uh, systems always reflect their creator. So if you have a system where someone isn't changing, notice a lot of those are things where you could tell people wouldn't be changing. It's because you've created a system where change isn't required. Mm. But by your 30th wedding anniversary, they should be getting it right. Yeah. There's the one question there we skipped was no those aren't new those are there's those are old clothes they're not new no those are, yeah you can't and so lie she's about saying that. it's like he's a secret shopper and yeah. she knows it but she doesn't yeah. call him out so that that's, that's like a lie a, that's, that's a, a bad deeper lie. problem yeah. yeah and all of these are going to be carried on if you don't handle it the truth will set you free my wife says that you can uh, lie if presents are involved oh okay that's a good point we'll take a break folks stick with us this is the Matt Townsend show helping you be the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Good to have you along for the ride. Hope you're having a wonderful day. It's Thursday, which means it's time to get ready for uh, Friday. That's the rule, right? Thursday's a special day. It's a special day. It's the day we get ready for Friday. I think that was more about Saturday and Sunday. But uh, who, you know, who's going to fight you on that one? We got a great show for you today. We're going to be talking with uh, America's preeminent First Amendment lawyer. 
And uh, at 80 years old, author of a new book, The Soul of the First Amendment, interesting, interesting history, interesting insights into a lot of the problems that President Trump, uh, you hear a lot about with him, from tweeting to uh, all the leaks to the the rights and responsibilities of reporters with those people that they're uh, sourcing and citing. All of this um, is involved in the First Amendment, and our guest, Floyd Abrams, uh, has has fought long and hard um, for rights for everybody from journalists to just the average citizen. So we're going to be talking about First Amendment again today um, in this first hour. We also, of course, will uh, get to some other headlines, empty news we call it, Matt Townsend News, plus um, some more fun with uh, just kind of the local headlines. But it's interesting. Apparently, President Trump uh, – the Europeans aren't loving him. Wrong. Okay. The Europeans love him. They just don't like him. Wrong. Oh, boy. It's a tough one. Apparently today, too, Comey will testify publicly about Trump's confrontations. Next week. Oh, excuse me, next week. Yeah. They're not doing all that today. That's too much. You got to spread this yeah. out. You got, you, well, you don't want to hurry the thing. Right. I mean, we want this Russia thing to go on forever. What would we talk about? Really, we'd have to talk about the Paris Accord and the Paris Agreements if the United States are going to be in the Paris Climate Agreements. Right. But eh. it's okay. We'll, we'll we'll go with Nicaragua and Syria and just yeah. step away. Just, yeah. Well, yeah. When you're in good company. Right. <laughs> wow. It's interesting. Um, just a lot going on. So we'll get to all of those fun headlines. But first, to the local headlines around the country, what's going on, Terry, that we should be worried about? Gerald Jerry DeLamuse was sentenced on Wednesday to more than seven years in prison for his role in organizing armed backers of Nevada's Nevada rancher Cliven Bundy after a standoff with U.S. agents in 2014. Remember that? They blocked yeah. a highway in kind of the Nevada, the, down there in that area. Um, he's the first person sentenced for the incident. Uh, Delamus has been in jail for almost 16 months, pled guilty last August to conspiracy to commit an offense against the U.S. as well as interstate travel. That's when they blocked the highway. Okay. In aid of in uh, in aid of extortion in 2016, he also said he had traveled to Oregon to join the Ammon Bundy occupation of a federal wildlife refuge. Oh, he was up there. Okay, so he was up there too. Good. But uh, no one's been convicted of this. And you, the standoff, you had the federal officers. Yeah. Walking towards people that were all had automatic, automatic or semi-automatic rifles and standoffs. So, so no one really was convicted in Oregon either, no. right? And not yet. They're, not, they're still going through the process okay. there. So we'll, we'll have more news hmm. from that. But I just find that interesting. 2014, now someone actually gets convicted yeah, so of it, it only took three years. Cops. Yeah, it's great. Uh, other news. People watched, read, listened, streamed, and posted more media than ever in 2016. But that consumption plateaued this year, according to data released uh, by a uh, research firm Zenith. Globally, individuals on average spent 456 minutes each day consuming media. Last year, uh, that was last year, 2017, it's expected to decline slightly to 455. Oh, wow. So 455 oh. minutes of your day. Oh, good. Okay. That suggests we've reached peak media, but that's not the case when you look at the data by regions. North American median consumption is expected to increase by 1.8% this year to 612 minutes a day compared with 601 minutes last year. Wow. So we found another 11 minutes to uh, consume some media. How do we? That's 10 hours. Yeah. 
Mobile internet drove overall media consumption because, as it says here, it turned what used to be non-media activity, like talking to friends and family, into Mm -hmm. a media activity on social media. Does anybody work? I don't know. Like, this is crazy. Who has 10 hours? Walk around here. There's lots of Facebook going on. Is there? People are messing with their phones. Yeah. Can't stand this. Did you do a little spying yourself? What do you mean? Well, like a little reconnaissance work. Yeah, he did. He went and sat in our bullpen. You just got to walk through, and all the computers are right there. (laughs) I just know that that's one way to maybe, you know, figure out what's going on with the sound barrier. Yeah, gather data. It's all good. Other news, Megan Kelly's new show begins Sunday when Kelly, now with NBC, launches her news magazine program Sunday night with Megan Kelly. Wow. They spent really a lot they spent a lot of money like testing that, getting in committees and trying to figure out what what works, what doesn't work. So Sunday night with Megan Well, Kelly. is she still under certain restraints because it seems like she was the number one person at Fox. Fox has been tanking. Wasn't she number one or two at Fox? Number two, yeah. Uh, Fox has been tanking kind of ever since. It seems like if I owned the asset of Megyn Kelly's program, I would get it on the air as fast as I could. Well, she's been on the uh, no non-compete type of yeah. situation, and now so that's now ending. They can, okay, good. And NBC and Fox have been negotiating to end it early. Ah, uh, yeah. So, yeah, you got to get that. You got to get her out there. Start right now, killing it. Right now, Kelly's in Russia. She's going to uh, interview uh, President Vladimir Putin on stage at the St. Petersburg International Economic Forum. And if history is any guide, she feels like she's going to have some extended period of one-on-one discussion with him. Yeah. And um, he tends to go off on tangents at times. And so she wants to capitalize on that. Okay, good. She says her show won't be all politics. Good, but when you're sitting across from Putin, you gotta you gotta ask. Gotta ask the question. So that's how's Sunday. his friend Donald Trump? That's Sunday, and then what's interesting is she's gonna have her show through the summer Sunday nights. Then it'll go away because of NFL football, mm. and then her show will be uh, then her daily show will start in the fall, and then she'll have her daily show, and then her nightly show once football's over on Sunday nights. Wow! So she's she'll hopefully be able to figure all that out. That's kind of. You know, I, I have a feeling if she does well, they'll put her everywhere. Yeah. You know what I mean? They're paying her $17 million a year. Yeah. Yeah. They better put ah, her that's everywhere. That's a little more than we got. Yeah. Ugh. That's more than a lot of baseball players get. That's right. She can't even catch. I no. No. I wonder how she hits. Her fastball is pathetic. <laughs> and finally, Matt, are you watching the NHL finals? Mm, no. Did you know the NHL finals are going on? Uh, yeah, I did. You did? Nashville. Uh-huh. And uh, is it Pittsburgh? It's Pittsburgh. Good yeah, job. Pittsburgh's currently up two nothing. You only knew Nashville because you watched the show Nashville. That's my favorite show. Yeah, but here's a story from Game One that was kind of okay. interesting. Yeah. It's kind of been playing out, and more details that came out as the week has gone on. The Nashville Predators, Pittsburgh Penguins, NHL Finals. The Predator fans have a tradition of tossing a catfish on the ice during the playoffs. The <laughs> NHL Finals opened in Pittsburgh. Predator fan Jake Waddle drove to Pittsburgh. Bought a $350 Game 1 ticket and a really big catfish. But he bought the catfish in Tennessee because he says he wanted a Nashville oh, catfish no. because it's more original to yeah. throw one of our catfish, Absolutely. not one of their catfish. Throw your own, right. He sprayed the fish down with Old Spice cologne and threw it in a cooler to keep the smell down. He drove to his cousin's house outside of Pittsburgh on Hello, game ladies. night. ladies. <laughs> on game <laughs> night, he filleted the fish, cut out half the spine, and ran over it with his truck. That made it easier to vacuum pack and conceal. 
He said, no matter, uh, he goes, uh, let's see, he, no matter how much I ran over it with my truck, the head was just too big. Yeah, it's big headed. To hide catfish. the catfish, Waddle planned to stash the fish in his boots. The head, uh, the head made that impossible, so he created a catfish underwear sandwich. Regular drawers went on first, then the catfish, then a pair of compression shorts, wow. then a pair of baggy pants. Waddle, Waddle said uh, he's lucky that he's a bigger guy. He said skinny jeans just wouldn't yeah, have worked. wouldn't have worked. Wouldn't no. have worked. Not, Your no. catfish would be showing. During a stoppage in play, Waddle tossed the fish on the ice and was immediately detained by security. By Tuesday morning, Waddle had been charged with disorderly conduct. Disrupting a meeting, and best of all, possessing an instrument of crime. Catfish. As in the fish. Uh, a Nashville radio station is going to cover any fines he incurs. He's got plenty of Nashville area lawyers that are willing to help. Waddle, who was in the uh, undersell, probably the undersell of the playoffs, he called himself a dumb redneck with a bad idea. <laughs> it's a- Look at your man. Now back to me. Ooh, is this, uh, I, I hear Old Spice is going to hire him to do a new commercial. Hiding a catfish. He said he put on, as he called it, the underwear sandwich. You know, And stood around his in-laws to make sure they couldn't smell it. He talked to him for like 20 minutes. Nobody could smell a thing. So he felt like he was good. As someone who's been on a liquid diet for a while, an underwear sandwich sounds pretty good right now. Even a catfish underwear sandwich. I don't know why. Is that, mm. is that too much effort to throw something on the ice in yeah. Pittsburgh? Okay. But what an interesting tradition. And you know he will go down in history in oh, Nashville. Yeah. He's as a hero. This guy gave everything. Well, he'll go down. Oh, yeah. That's for sure. He did it for us. Boy, can you imagine? Is he married? Uh, I didn't say. Because I'm going with no. <laughs> I'm going to bet he's single man. <laughs> because, A, you got a nasty old fish. Yeah. Stinking up with some Old Spice. Well, probably smelled good. Stuffed in your drawers. Right. Maybe that would fix the president's deviated septum. Um, okay, here's a crazy one for you. Yeah. Uh, apparently, um, Hillary Clinton, uh, his, her daughter Chelsea, uh-huh. said, guess... <laughs> Excuse me. Yeah, you're sorry. This is still happening. This is this is her latest speech. She, she which, gave a commencement over the weekend, yeah. and this happened. So oh, she's got a lot of the cough still. It's I think it's just the air. It's the air everywhere that she breathes because mm-hmm. she does it in a variety of situations. Oh yeah, it's everywhere. Oh, okay. Um, but uh, Chelsea said that the way her mom got through the entire loss issue and all the pain that is associated with losing an election when you actually had the most popular votes. Mm. Was Chardonnay, so I guess wine, okay, and Charlotte, her grandbaby. Oh, I thought it was a really cool thing. Chardonnay wasn't that one of the characters from High School Musical? <laughs> Probably. Or no, that was Sharpay. Yeah, Which, Sharpay. Me. That's Which a one? dog too. Which one? There's three of them. <laughs> um, They're all the same. But oh, okay. <laughs> you guys don't quite understand this because you're so young and you just have your children. But oh. there is no better fix than to be with your granddaughter when you're down. That's what I've been told. And out. It's just the best. Ah. <laughs> I have never tried Chardonnay. Are you having a moment? Yeah. <laughs> so my granddaughter was throwing a fit because uh, we woke her up from a nap and all she wanted was her grandpa to hold her. Aw. Because she, I think she feels like I'm soft and cushiony. So she can just nuzzle into me and just take a little nap. And we watched Moana, Moana together. Again? Like, oh, Yeah. We've watched it 500 times. Oh. <laughs> oh. 
So I think that's really cool. Hillary Clinton spending some time with her offspring, her downline, <laughs> if you're in the multi-level marketing world. Wow. Yeah. And she probably is. And she definitely is. Hey, by the way, today is also Say Something Nice Day, mm. which I think that was nice. That's why I was saying that. It was nice of Hillary, actually Chelsea, to say that her, her mom got through it with a lot of alcohol and her grandchild. Okay. Hopefully the two weren't mixed. No. Yeah. Uh, they also planted a garden. Well, she did spend a lot of time outdoors. As well, we saw. I, I, yeah. Normally she's like – In the forest. In the forest. But I didn't know she was a gardener. I think that's great. I hate gardening. Me too. But more power to you. Is she listening to her plants? Yeah. Okay. She, she's she's listened to our show about listening to your plants. Um, so today's Say Something Nice. It was created as a day to be kind to, to the special people in our lives. So I was going to give each of you a chance to say something nice. Are you about you or are you fishing for a compliment? Oh, no. Or? No, no, no. I'm not, I don't need a compliment, but it would be nice. <laughs> so go ahead and say it. Uh, I'll get back to you. Okay. It's also Go Barefoot Day. I'd prefer if you didn't. Jeff. Ugh. Sorry about that. Jeff, by the way, is um, pregnant and barefoot. Mm. Well, one of those is – actually, neither of those is true. <laughs> but you, your, your, your wife is pregnant and you are barefoot. Do you, see, do you see people around the office barefoot? With like flip-flops, yeah. Well, even like they, they'll wear flip-flops and just kick them off and start walking around the building. Oh, you can't do that. Like this is kind of public in the sense – I mean people are just walking in off the street into the building and you don't know what's on the carpets. Great point. Just wait till they get their feet up on the desk and they pull out the toenail clippers. That's the other thing. They get stuck in between the keys. Would you rather – I think people lose all decorum when they take off their shoes. Well, come on. We just talked about a guy with a catfish in his underwear. <laughs> it smelled, I think that's it smelled, a bigger, it smelled of old spice. That's a bigger problem. He ran over it with his truck. He had to flatten the head out of those big catfish. Crazy. All right, folks, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we will be talking with Floyd Abrams uh, on his book, The Soul of the First Amendment. Some great insight ahead. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends. The First Amendment of the United States Constitution protects the American people's right to voice their opinions freely. And our next guest, Floyd Abrams, is a First Amendment uh, lawyer and author of the Soul of the First Amendment, the author of the book, The Soul of the First Amendment. And he's also America's preeminent First Amendment lawyer and has an incredible history of defending First Amendment law and and is here uh, today to not only talk about his book, but to educate all of us. On uh, you know what what we think we know what we don't know about the First Amendment, Floyd Abrams. Thank you so much for being with us today. Well, it's good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. You bet. What an honor! And um, boy, oh boy, has there ever been a president where First Amendment was a bigger issue? <laughs> uh, well, yeah. I, I mean, John Adams did get the yeah. Sedition Act back then, right? Exactly, seventeen ninety eight through. But we we sure haven't had a recent president. Yeah, and, and John Adams uh, wasn't uh, tweeting, was he? That's right. That's right. <laughs> Thank heavens, huh? So, talk to us about the First Amendment because 
Um, it seems like we're really heavy on giving the right to uh, to the to freedom of speech. Is there uh, is there an inherent responsibility that goes along with the right? Uh, there is not a, a legal responsibility. Uh, uh, I mean, the, the uh, we protect more speech, including more obnoxious, uh, offensive, and sometimes even dangerous speech uh, than any country uh, in the world uh, because of the the sense, uh, as reflected in the First Amendment, that uh, we simply can't trust the government uh, and will not empower the government to make decisions about, uh, you know, what people can say uh, and ultimately what people can think. But after you say that, that leaves all the range for all of us to uh, apply our own uh, moral judgments uh, and ethical judgments and the like. Uh, so, you know, when uh, when a comedian uh, offers a, a severed head hmm. uh, of President Trump, uh, it doesn't violate the First Amendment for, for people to say that's outrageous, it's ugly, it's unacceptable. Excuse me. The only thing that would be unacceptable is if some government censor came in hmm. and said, well, you can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> well, what an interesting um, what an interesting, I guess, paradox that we protect the comedian's rights um, to say such a thing. And then I guess we just allow the marketplace to yeah. be punitive. And indeed, she's been fired. Yeah, uh, I, I just read. Yes, she uh, was from CNN, and, and and that doesn't violate the First Amendment either, uh, right? Uh, uh, for a few reasons, one of which is that the, uh, the the First Amendment and the whole Bill of Rights uh, is a limitation on the government, not private conduct. I mean, it's intended to limit the authority, the power uh, of of government, and nothing else, more or less. Uh, uh, you know, beyond that, uh, I think people would think it's a it's a good thing to allow decisions to be made uh, as to you know who you want to have on in your newspaper uh, on this program uh, on the air. I mean, we wouldn't we wouldn't want even if we didn't have a First Amendment, we wouldn't want some some government bureaucrat to be deciding uh, who mm. you could interview. No, right. And uh, then this kind of runs into the some of the political arguments we hear about, you know, flag burning and other issues like that. Do you do you sense that we know that that we're we're pretty good at balancing this the, the rights with the needs to speak in this country? I think we are uh uh we, uh, you know, have, as every country has, but uh, a checkered history in terms of protection for uh, free speech. We've had our bad days, our bad times, uh, and the like. But but uh, the 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 existence of the First Amendment, the interpretation of the First Amendment, very broadly in nature by the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, has has gone a long way towards establishing legal norms, which which allow uh, enormous leeway uh, for people to decide uh, what to say, what to print, and therefore ultimately uh, what to think. Is do, do you sense? Because one of the things I guess President Trump has 
he's I, I don't know he's he's made a lot of suggestions. He uses Twitter to kind of I guess throw ideas out there and I guess see where they go. But um, in the end, do we? I, I how do we allow um, a president? To I guess we have to allow it. It's freedom of speech. But Twitter seems to be getting him in a lot of trouble. And I guess with the freedom of speech, we don't always need the government to step in and tell you not to say something. I guess there is a point where you just need to know it's not in your best interest. Absolutely. Uh, you, you need to make your own decision. Uh, and uh, when we're talking about a president, uh, the country uh, passes a sort of judgment yeah. uh, about so, you know, whether, you know, how to assess uh, a president who says the things uh, on a rather regular basis and takes the positions uh, that this president or, you know, whoever Anybody, this right. may, may be. Yeah, sure. Is what? But, but I would add that, yeah, yeah sure, pre- presidents uh, also have First Amendment rights. Right. And beyond that, beyond that, you know, we, uh, we, we, there, it's more important. Uh, for us to hear, read, and pass judgment on what a president thinks about things, whatever we may think of what he thinks, uh, than than almost anyone else. Hmm. And as as somebody that uh, has argued before the Supreme Court, talk to us about because one of the things I know we hear a lot about is 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 the press and uh their use of sourcing and they have undisclosed sources and anonymous sources have said such and such um at what at what point and help us understand kind of the history behind the sourcing and and how how you're allowed to say something with a a source that's anonymous and why that's so important to us well, it's really important because there's a lot of uh, information uh, which is relevant to what we call self-government, you know, to the public being in charge, ultimately. Uh, not always true, but always what we sort of aim for uh, in our country, uh, which simply couldn't be known without the use of uh, confidential sources. Uh, this administration... Uh, has uh, more often than not been uh, the the butt, as it were, uh, of confidential sources within the government, because there were obviously uh, a great uh, a number of people, certainly enough people well enough placed uh, uh, to want to call attention of the public to what the sources believe is is uh, improper conduct. Uh, by the president. Now, one doesn't have to approve uh, of the use of confidential sources uh, all the time. I, I mean, I remember back way in the period in which Senator Joseph McCarthy was uh, running rampant and accusing people of being communists or pro-communists or the like. And sometimes uh, the FBI wrongly gave information, suspicions about people which Senator McCarthy used uh, against them uh, and publicly. Uh, And, you know, a lot of the people who are all in favor of the leaks that have been critical or exposing uh, problems of the Trump administration would, I'm I'm sure, uh, be uh, against 
uh, leaks uh, of different sorts. Uh, that doesn't mean they're being inconsistent. It just means that you know we live in a world which which has had a, a certain degree uh, of uh, leakage from within the government, including leakage, I would say, from people at the top uh, in the government because they think it's in their interest or they think it's in the interest uh, of the country. And it's just become a, a sort of part of our system. Uh, uh, and, and I think as citizens, you know, we have to judge it uh, uh, sort of on a, an a la carte basis that yeah. there are some leaks that are bad uh, and harmful to society and others uh, that I would use the word uh, patriot to hmm. describe people who provide certain information, which is really important for the government to know. So in my book, for example, I'm very critical of WikiLeaks and Julian Assange, yeah. uh, the, the ultimate publisher uh, of leaked uh, information. Uh, but that doesn't mean that, you know, that I think or that I think our, our listeners today ought to simply reject out of hand uh, everything that comes to them via leaks. Mm. And it's uh, what do you sense is leading to all of the leaks? I mean, we have more leaks, it seems like, than ever before. Yeah, I think that I think uh, it is uh, a sense that uh, with respect to certain issues of the highest importance in the country, that the public isn't being told the truth. Mm. So when you get to an issue like the uh, Russian uh, involvement uh, and activities, which all the intelligence authorities agree occurred uh, in our last election, uh, that uh, I, I suspect that there, there were people, you know, pr pretty high up, uh, who think it's, it, it is important that, that what went on and any sort of cooperation or collusion of any sort uh, be made public. Uh, I mean, now we're going to have an investigation of that, an official yeah. in, in investigation, but that wouldn't have happened if we didn't have the initial leaks that sort of put the public on notice that there was a real problem here. Do you sense there will be a prosecution of some of the people that are leaking? I mean, is it is it hard to catch uh, a, a leaker? Shock me. Uh, I mean, it's really uh, not that's not knowable. But but you ask it in the right way. Do it. Do I sense? Yeah, actually, yes. I wouldn't be surprised if the administration, uh, for both ideological and sort of tactical, strategic reasons. From their point of view, they would rather talk about the impropriety and the potential illegality of leaking rather than what information has been made public as a result of the leaks. Right. And I think that that could well lead them to say, well, let's take the next step. Why don't, why don't we process not, not just fire this person or that person if we find out that he or she leaked it, but, uh, you know, why don't we start some prosecutions? and. One of the things I've been concerned about uh, is whether we would have any potential prosecutions of journalists themselves who are the recipients, but, of the but data, not yeah. the leakers, uh, because our, uh, we have a problem. We have, a, we have an Espionage Act, which is 100 years old, which is phrased very broadly, uh, uh, under which we've never prosecuted a, a, a real journalist. 
but which has very broad language, uh, and we have yet to have opinions of the Supreme Court because we've not had prosecutions uh, defining just how to read that language. Oh, wow. And and I guess that's one of the responsibilities of journalists is to make sure – I mean that's the that's – the, I guess the onus they take on is they have to risk possible prosecution – yeah, and and true. and make sure the data is relevant and important enough to get out there. Absolutely, and and uh, I mean, you know, the idea certainly shouldn't be that just because you have some information, you, you rush to publish it. Right. I mean, it ought to be, it ought to be relevant uh, and and uh, uh, you know, really uh, uh, revelatory, uh, uh, telling something that's worth telling uh, and and running what I consider to be the continuing risks uh, of, of the journalistic community and, and doing so. And, I mean, look, I, I think uh, that the, this is a personal view that that the uh, journalistic coverage of the whole uh, Russia uh, uh, involvement uh, in our election uh, has has been of a very high level, a very important level, uh, a very serious level, uh, and and something again which which simply would not have become center stage, but from a journalist uh, being uh, willing to take the extra step, not just to get information, but to make the the, the core decision of t- uh, publication. Hmm. No, I'd say yeah. I agree, and I think it's uh, it's such a tight walk, uh, tightrope walk that they're doing, trying to balance the needs, balance the evidence, make sure it's clear, multiple sourcing, all of the things they need to do. And I guess as if they have to go anonymous, they have to go anonymous. Um, interesting stuff. We're, we're speaking with Floyd Abrams, author of the book "The Soul of the First Amendment." He is a First Amendment lawyer and a preeminent one at that. Um, also is uh, a graduate school, is a visiting professor at the Graduate School of Journalism in Columbia University and is the William J. Brennan visiting professor there. Interesting uh, discussion. Honored to have Floyd Abrams with us. We'll take a break, come back, continue the journey about the First Amendment, learning what we can to help us all be better in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Joining us on the phone is Floyd Abrams. He is uh, an American attorney and um, also a, an expert in First Amendment and free speech. He is the William J. Brennan, Jr., visiting professor at the Graduate School of Journalism at Columbia University. And uh, he's been involved in writing many briefs for the Supreme Court. I believe uh, one, in, one was uh, the Pentagon Papers. Was that right, Floyd? Yes, I was involved uh, representing the New York Times. Uh, now, because that's that's a pretty. I mean, there's some interesting parallels, and, and I guess the Pentagon Papers would is about the Johnson administration uh, systematically, I guess, lying to Congress and to the American people about their involvement in our involvement in in uh, Vietnam. Is it? How does that? 
how do you see that paralleling? I mean, First Amendment wise, the need to 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 you know allow not allow leaks, but to get this information out. Right. Well, like the Pentagon Papers, which uh, uh, really traced. Uh, how the U.S. became involved in Vietnam, starting with World War II and then going on right up to the Nixon administration, but focusing most, as you say, uh, on the Johnson administration, uh, uh, was all uh, uh, stamped top secret. It was a, a Defense Department uh, uh, study of how we'd become involved uh, in the war, uh, prepared at the request of the Secretary of Defense, Robert McNamara. Um, you know, and the basic challenge there was that the government, President Nixon in power, went to court seeking to stop the New York Times from publishing articles hmm. based on this uh, secret, although historical in nature, uh, study. And my view is that if we had not won that, uh, and we did, if the New York Times uh, had not uh, won that case, uh, we would be in a situation uh, in which uh, every administration, and most certainly this one, <laughs> would be considering very seriously going to court to try to stop the publication uh, of the very leaks that you asked me about. Yeah. Uh, of, of, of saying, look, this isn't authorized, and it's, it's harmful to uh, the governments always say it's harmful to national security uh, uh, and it's important to keep the, this sort of stuff secret uh, and the times uh, the, the, the entire press the public has no right to it etc and and the, the great contribution of the uh, Pentagon Papers case ruling was that it, uh, presidents have learned that that a prior restraint, an injunction, a bar on publication, is something that they uh, are is really off limits to them. You know, one could imagine a situation, maybe, but but in terms of sort of day to day life, as president being angry or upset or concerned about publication of material that you think is harmful, harmful to you, maybe you think harmful to the country. One of the weapons they don't have is to go to court uh, and say, stop them, enter yeah. an order, bar them from publishing it. And that, uh, that was a very major uh, contribution of the Pentagon Papers decision. Well, and you can see with President Trump, who seems to have so much animus towards, um, toward the press, that that would be this, – this would get ugly yeah, if, if legally he could yeah. just keep suing the media. Um, talk about the – I guess that we hear a lot about a lot of intelligence and we hear, you know, Congress people running here and there to go see intelligence reports and briefs. Is there – it seems like everything's now top secret. Every piece of information yeah. – is, is that running into a problem where some information is just – It's I guess it's been noted as top secret when it really might not be top secret? Well, that's true. That's that's not a uh, that's not limited to this administration. Yeah, classification, but, uh, but, I guess. You know, uh, yeah, the overclassification of material uh, has has been problematic for years and years. Um, it it comes to the fore here, you know, because the very material we're talking about, uh, you know, bears upon the the conduct 
of the campaign of the president himself. Um, and uh, uh, obviously, if that were all it dealt with, uh, it really shouldn't be classified right. at all. Uh, on the other hand, it, it, to the extent it deals with them dealing with the Russians, uh, yeah, one can see how it would be classified. But but if it's classified, it you know it's important that the classification be system basically be understood as a limitation on on uh, how how documents within the control of the government should be handled, mm. not a broad limitation. Uh, on the ability of the public uh, to find out what's going on with respect to the behavior uh, of of our, our our governmental entities. I mean, I mean, remember the whole the whole theory of our country is is is, is that it is based on the notion that that it is the public uh, that that is the ultimate fount of authority, hmm. uh, and and while. You know, while there are limits, and we have limits, uh, uh, both for reasons that we can't just have a series of referenda, one after another, on every issue, uh, we we also have limits because the public itself often uh, uh, coalesces behind uh, views and approaches which are or may be discriminatory in nature. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, suppose, for example, uh, that what 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 the president uh, when he was running for office, uh, and he said we we ought to have a complete ban on all Muslims hmm. entering America. Uh, it it may well have been. I don't know what the polling data is, but let's say sixty percent of the public thought that was a good idea. Uh, that doesn't make it constitutional. Right. And uh, one of the reasons we have a constitution is so our courts can can have a look at that and say uh, this is based on what is essentially a violation of the First Amendment because it's based on religion. Hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, and so uh, all these factors come into play. Uh, but but uh, it, it certainly is true that that they're they're coming into play. People are learning about them, which is good, and and understanding I think more all the time. You know just uh, how the Constitution in general and and the Bill of Rights in particular and the First Amendment in particular protects them. What do you think the founding fathers would think about this whole social media push and? The power of Facebook, the power of the of because yeah. the press isn't just you know a well respected Columbia prof, you know author or right. writer anymore. The press is now somebody in their bedroom writing on a laptop uh, and Absolutely. and reaching millions of people. Well, first I think they'd be stunned. Yeah, can you imagine <laughs> the whole notion of social media? Uh, but. Uh, uh, and, 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 and again, let's bear in mind, uh, the First Amendment only applies to the government. Right. It does not apply to social media. Uh, social media has protection against the government, but, but the government you know, can't, as a general proposition, tell social media or people on it what they're allowed to say or what they're not allowed to say. Um, but back to your question, I think that... Uh, that they would uh, sort of take a deep breath 
I think they'd come out the same way uh, as uh, as they did, which is to say, uh, the, the Bill of Rights applies only to the government uh, and and only limits the government. It doesn't limit social media. But they'd, they'd be concerned, I think, about the degree to which Facebook, say, is the the source mm. of news for, for such an enormous percentage uh, of our public, uh, and therefore the the power of of, the, of that institution and its competitors. But Facebook is, you know, first amongst them in terms of the amount. Of, of individuals who, who get their news and information from Facebook. Yeah, I, th- I think they'd also be concerned on at least uh, at least one other uh, basis, and that is that more and more now uh, people are able uh, to get a diet only of news that they agree with. Right. Uh, that that one, one can arrange one's social media. So, so you got the you know the columnists, the people, the sources that you like, which is on the one hand uh, an example of freedom, it is, but on the other uh, is a major shift away from a time in which the country as a whole was basically getting the same sort of information at the same time, uh, even as to purely factual matters, nine yeah. eleven, you know, an event a terrible event uh, threatening the country. And, uh, you know, we, we, we have moved to a situation now where people can create the, their own menu and in which that menu, uh, you know, has included a good deal of rightly called fake news. Yeah. Uh, entities, you know, which, which uh, have no, no reality to them at all as news gathering and news dissemination entities, but are simply lying mm. for for ideological or other purposes. Yeah, and sometimes just marketing, right? Just to make another yeah, lead, to get another dollar. Marketing. Yeah, exactly. What um, we only have about a minute left, Floyd. But I want give us your give us your wisdom, your insight. What what do we as Americans need to remember? and not take for granted when it comes to the First Amendment? I guess the most important thing is that we need the First Amendment most when we're talking about speech with which we do not agree, uh, a speech that offends us, uh, or at the least which we think is is really sort of uh, harmful. Uh, uh, You know, you don't really need a First Amendment to protect popular views. Uh, you need it to protect dissenting views, and 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 it would be a good thing, you know, if we all recognized and celebrated the fact that that you know we are open as a people uh, to to having views expressed uh, uh, with which we disagree uh, and which we think are even harmful to the country, and it would be a good thing sometime if we had a look to see what people with whom we disagree had to say about things. So true. So true. Well, Floyd, we appreciate you and your great uh, history, your great work. Thank you for uh, enlightening us and giving us the time. Again, Floyd Abrams is the author of the book, The Soul of the First Amendment, and um, you can you can find that on bookshelves everywhere. Boy, what a great thing. We We need the First Amendment to protect the rights of the 
of the speech you don't agree with. And if you've ever been a minority or in a minority grouping or class, you you get the power of the First Amendment that allows the voice and facilitates, hopefully, an open conversation between these combative ideas. We'll take a break, my friend. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. I'm ready to go in, coach. Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Play ball! Welcome back, friends. Um, Boy, oh boy, when you have a scholar on the show that uh, has met and argued before the Supreme Court, the Pentagon Papers case, Citizens United case, and a variety of other cases... And in the end, the ultimate uh, lesson he teaches is the importance of being able to hear and allow the freedom of speech of the person you most disagree with. It's it's a pretty powerful point, right? So so let's all take it in and, and ask ourselves, how well are you doing on that front? How effective are you at being informed, first and foremost, and, and not just being informed by your media source, but being kind of widely read and, uh, and informed by a variety of sources. And how, how well are you at listening to another person's, how effectively can you, uh, can you listen to another person's position, point of view? Can you describe their point of view to their satisfaction, to show that you really get it? And do you know how to add your point of view and build onto theirs. See, a lot of us think it's got to be a, di- a debate where we have to, I have to break you down, I have to cut your issues up and tear it up. But it really should be a dialogue that we're trying to create here. A dialogue is where both of our ideas can coexist, and we should just trust the power of our idea. I don't need to intimidate you. I don't need to shut you down. I don't need to keep you away from certain outlets. I don't need to you know, push your idea and drown your idea, your idea, if it if it holds water, it should hold water. And just let the ideas combat instead of the people combating. Wouldn't that be powerful? The power of the First Amendment. And uh, look at this. You did nothing to get it, really. You just now have to keep it. We'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. 